This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Oh, and we're back with another action-packed horrific, abysmal, dark episode of Art of Darkness. And I am Kevin Kautzman here in snowy St. Paul, Minnesota, joined by my partner in crime, fellow podcast cultist, Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. Uh, I have gone down past the the, uh, unspeakable eldritch terror of the past few weeks of research and i'm ready to again you know encounter other human beings for a little while so i'm I'm pretty good i'm pretty excited about that (laughs) okay all right well we have another human being here with us as well do you want to make an introduction to our uh our special guest yeah 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 so we've got um a good friend of mine ben thomas uh, ben is the mastermind and editor behind House Blackwood, most notable for the Willows Anthology, which collects the best of the Willows magazine, uh, which, Ben, I don't think you're, you're running the Willows magazine anymore. Is that right? The, the, right. The magazine is uh, discontinued. The anthology yeah. is available as a hardback. And of course, we also put, just put out Tales from Omnipark uh, last year, yeah. a collection of stories set in a theme park that might have been, which includes a uh, fiction by Brad Kelly, as well as various yeah, other me, people. And, and yeah, uh, Brian Evanson and Jim Files and, and yourself, Ben Thomas. Um, it's, a fun little, it's a fun little project. Not a little project. It's, fun, it's a big project, but uh, it's, yeah. definitely, it's definitely fun, worth checking out. Uh, ben is also the author of The Sword and the Cradle. Sweeping. Great Cradle and the Sword. Cra- yeah. Oh, did, it, did I get that <laughs> wrong? Oh. <laughs> it's The Cradle and the Sword, but yeah. That, that's, that's even uh, that's better. A, that's, a, his, that's a better title. Yeah. It's a historical, <laughs> historical fiction novel, sort of loosely based on Dune, uh, tracks 5,000 years of history in ancient Mesopotamia. Cradle and the Sword is, uh, could be worth checking out. That's based. All right. Yeah, that's nice. Excellent. Ben, and where also, can people find all this stuff? Just hang on. Amazon. Yeah. Oh, at Amazon. Yeah, see, okay, you can you can get most of it on Amazon. The Willows is a special printing uh, by a by a press here in Austin, Texas, where I live. But uh, you can go, if you go to houseblackwood.net, uh, you can find everything there. Beautiful. Also, also Ben runs the Strange Continent. Continent. Tell us a little I bit. Do, about wow, Continent. I do. I do a lot of yeah. things. Yeah, you do I have, a lot uh, of things. I, man. <laughs> I run I run the blog uh, the Strange Continent, which is a uh, blog about. Uh, really the history and the culture of cultures that tend not to be documented as much, especially by people here in the West. So uh, nomadic cultures of Central Asia, ancient Persia, the Scythians, the steppe tribes, uh, you know, Central African uh, civilizations from ancient history, just the stuff, all, all of the history that you, you know, when you were in school and you, you heard about uh, what was going on in certain parts of the world, if you ever wondered, like, what was going on at that time in, like, all the rest of everywhere, that's what the yeah. Strange Continent is about. Ah, so. Very, very cool. Very right, cool. right. Well, and it's, it sounds like Ben might be uniquely positioned to help us 
uh, handle our subject today. Who is who, Brad? H.P. Lovecraft. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Gasp! And he fainted (laughs) into his chair. (laughs) This is this is is the this is the big one, guys. This is the granddaddy. This is a granddaddy episode. You can hear my fainting sound there. I'm falling back into my uh, into my what what do you call it? Like a fainting couch, right? Yeah, yeah. This is a big one. It is a big one. It is a big one. And we'll, we'll get right into it, uh, I suppose. But Kevin, uh, classic Art of Darkness opening question. What do you know about H.P. Lovecraft? I've been thinking about this a little bit today, and I do try to keep these answers brief. This one is probably going to be a little longer than normal, uh, if only because Lovecraft has such a, a footprint on the culture. Mm-hmm. But in this well, rather, rather sin- in unspeakable sin- way. Yeah, this sort of sinister, <laughs> strange way. It's like the thing is a metaphor for itself, right? Uh, most recently, I watched what I think is probably the greatest piece of art that exists inside the, the Lovecraftian universe, which, of course, is True Detective Season 1. Oh. Uh, in that... It, well, maybe maybe I'm offending Ben. Ben, please. No, 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 quite, no. The, quite the opposite. Oh, True, De- yeah. True Detective season oh. one is Bay. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, you were smacking your lips. I couldn't tell if you yeah. were like if you're like a purist no. who's like, oh no, an Evil Dead over oh, everything. Oh no. But, later okay. later in this episode, we'll get into how everything from you know John Carpenter's The Thing, Alien, his influence. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's I, everywhere. It, yeah. It's and exactly and you're yeah you're jumping into kind of what I was going to say, which is that it's it's in everything. You sometimes have to know how to look, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. True Detective season one lives within the King in Yellow. The King in Yellow was was it Robert Block who sort of wrote within this this tradition, this school. I think I was corrected, um, and I hate being corrected, but I think I was corrected <laughs> for mistakenly associating Lovecraft with with Baltimore when in fact that he's from Rhode Island. So I had that, mm. that correction. I know because of sort of the darker side of Twitter that he had a, his cat had an unfortunate name, which yes. maybe we won't mention. Uh, but I, I just know that because of Twitter. Thank you, Twitter. The hell. I mean, Lovecraft could never have imagined the horror that is the bird <laughs> website. Uh, I don't think he would have lasted a one week. Um, but yeah, and if, of course, you can find us at Art of Dark Pod on Twitter. And then, of course, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. But that Getting into it, I did read a lot of Lovecraft when I was a teenager. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. I think like so many. Explains a lot. You're looking, yeah, you're looking for the strange and the sort of. It has that quality of kind of there's a like a dirtiness to it, or kind of like a a mustiness. Like it's like the way they sell this to sort of young men and to sort of teenage boys. There's like an edge to it, but then also the reading, the prose is very strong. It, It it tends to be epistolary. So it's always somebody's writing a letter and going mad. Uh, <laughs> right. Which pretty, it's pretty kind of yeah, and it, it sometimes has that like, and here they come up the steps kind of like, oh, mm. it doesn't quite do that. But like, there's, a, uh, there's uh, another thing about his work, and I am going to go on a little bit here. Um, all right. Another thing about his work is that there's, if you're re- it's not entirely clear what the hell is going on a lot of the time because of the quality of madness, but also like in the work itself, it's sort of hard to get a read on, okay, well, this is a novella and this is a short story. And how does this fit into, is this all happening in the same universe? Mm. It's a vibe 
for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then beyond this, I, it's just that like uh, you can't overstate his influence uh, on on people, on the arts, and sort of even now, there's just always some new media product that is directly. I mean, they even have the show Lovecraft Country, don't they? Uh, now yeah. and tabletop role playing, it was part of all mm-hmm. that that funky fun counterculture mm-hmm. i mean hell even even metallica have that have the the instrumental song is it on the end of ride the lightning is it call of cthulhu mm. oh do they really is it, yeah, or is that, it and there's another one called the thing that should not be very love yeah. oh okay yeah, okay. yeah. so it's, and it's, it's, it's there was a band called i feel Lovecraft actually in the 60s so there you really? go so it's wow. just it's very it's like nerds <laughs> <laughs> in like nerd territory but there's yeah. enough of an edge and a weirdness <laughs> and that is what I know about H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I dig that. I dig that. Um, I want to start, uh, I'm always thinking about how to structure these and, and getting into the life and work of, of Lovecraft. The Cthulhu mythos universe, if any subject we've covered so far has had something that was bigger than them, it's this. Like, in terms of what they created is way larger than they were um and so i kind of want to start there and kind of throw it to ben and ben can you just give us uh you know at whatever kind of level of resolution you think is appropriate a what is the cthulhu mythos yeah when when i say that what's that mean yeah this is i think the what you just prefaced it with is perfect brad it's it's so much larger than lovecraft himself it's uh some other uh writers including alan moore who wrote uh, of course the watchman and various other graphic novels uh alan moore was a huge lovecraft fan and said that lovecraft more than anything else seemed to be like a person who was trying to perpetrate an incredibly elaborate hoax rather than mm. writing a fictional world mm. so it's not just Cthulhu, the monster Cthulhu that we're all, of course, familiar with today. Um, It's an entire mythological world. It's cities like Arkham, Massachusetts. It's Miskatonic University. It's books like the Necronomicon, and there's a whole other list of them that that we'll go into uh, later in the episode. It's surprisingly not really human characters, by and large. Um, Lovecraft was a a big aficionado of Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, of course. But unlike uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, doesn't really have any protagonists or plot points that recur through multiple stories. You can kind of read them in any order. But that said, they are almost all set in New England, in uh, a lot of them in rural New England, um, and or in very esoteric parts of the world, you know, the, the, the heart of the Rub al-Khali, the, the Arabian desert, or some uh, desolate place in the uh, Australian outback, or the heart of Antarctica, or some, some place like that. And uh, what Lovecraft's, I guess I would say part of the unique, the uniqueness of what makes it a Lovecraft mood in the same way that Kafkaesque is a mood, is that it's bringing all of these things together. It's like Lovecraft is the only person who, who I can think of who could write a horror story that brings together like Einsteinian uh, space-time physics, Antarctic archaeology, uh, you know, human sacrifice cults from ancient history, monsters from beyond the stars, invertebrate physiology, and the world of dreams and the Jungian subconscious, and somehow weaves these all together into a single narrative thread. And the thread is humanity is doomed, basically. Uh, we're, we're, we're totally screwed. Aliens are coming. Alien gods are coming to eat us, and right. there's nothing we can do about it. Right. 
Boom. No lie detected, bro. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. So we're gonna we're gonna like kind of we're gonna find Lovecraft in there and find that in Lovecraft and and and, and the whole and the whole shebang. I want to go right from that. Um, and you know what's funny is I've read The Watchmen and I didn't even realize until you said that that the 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 monster that is unleashed near the end of Watchmen is clearly a Lovecraftian monster. Absolutely. I, Alan, I don't know how Alan I didn't Moore, make that connection. Alan Moore is a huge Lovecraft fan. He actually wrote a cycle of graphic novels, uh, the best of which I think is called Providence, named after Lovecraft's mm-hmm. hometown, which uh, mm-hmm. and which Lovecraft is actually a character in. Uh, okay. Highly recommended, required reading uh, Providence uh, for anybody who likes Lovecraft. Also, Neil Gaiman, massively mm-hmm. influenced by Lovecraft. Grant Morrison, massively influenced by Lovecraft. I mean, it's, oh. it's, we'll, we'll get into it as we go through. But sure. it's, it's, anywhere in any of the speculative literary fields, he's mm-hmm. just ubiquitous yeah yeah for sure so i want to i want to go from there i've got a segue right to the time when lovecraft is a child right so we we see this world and now i'm going to read a little bit from uh lovecraft wrote uh, at least a hundred thousand probably many more letters to people it's probably why he wasn't quite as uh, prolific he could have been a more prolific writer of fiction if he hadn't written you know a quarter million letters in his life or whatever it was okay so but here's one um, and he's, he's talking to a friend of his in this letter. When I was six or seven, I used to be tormented constantly with a peculiar type of recurrent nightmare in which a monstrous race of entities called by me night gaunts, I don't know where I got hold of the name, used to snatch me up by the stomach and carry me off through infinite leagues of black air over the towers of dead and horrible cities. They would finally get me into a gray void where I could see the needle-like pinnacles of enormous mountains miles below, Then they would let me drop, and as I gained momentum in my Icarus-like plunge, I would start awake in such a panic that I hated to think of sleeping again. The night gaunts were black, lean, rubbery things with horns, barbed tails, bat wings, and no faces at all. Undoubtedly, I derived the image from the jumbled memory of Doré drawings, uh, Gustave Doré, which fascinated me in waking hours. They had no voices and their only form of real torture was their habit of tickling my stomach before snatching me up and swooping away with me. I somehow had the vague notion that they lived in the black burrows honeycombing the pinnacle of some incredibly high mountain somewhere. They seemed to come in flocks of 25 or 50 and would sometimes fling me, on, fling me one to the other. Night after night, I dreamed the same horror with only minor variants, but I never struck those hideous mountain peaks before waking. So, so, you know, that's two things, two things. One, I stand by what I said. He wouldn't last a week on Twitter. Two, of course, it's a joke. Um, wow. He's got no chill. The second thing yep. is I'm sure we have drugs to handle this now. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a possibility. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, just, just really want to underline that six-year-old Lovecraft dreaming of being tickled, tortured by creatures <laughs> and of, made of black latex. Just really want to underline yeah, that. Right, 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 right. Seal that in for sure. For sure. <laughs> Our, gentlemen, may I ask a question? Does that not trigger some memory of, of nightmares or, or night terrors you may have had as children? I had a nightmare a few times about a wolf attacking me and pouncing on me and tearing my stomach open. Oof. Like a monstrous, like, you know, three times the size of a wolf wolf. And it, it stays with you when you mm-hmm. have a memory yeah. like that. I remember uh, a, a dream I had where I had to jump from uh, tombstone to tombstone 
in order to avoid falling into the the pit Ooh. of a graveyard. I mean Ooh. that that haunted me for years. But the ability to write it so well. What what mm. about what about you, Ben? Anything like yeah, that? Yeah, he he. Um, and by the way, Lovecraft often would write stories in a fugue state between dreams and waking later in his life. By the way, well, mm. he, he sort of like uh, if you remember the stories about um, Salvador Dali, the way that he would fall asleep uh, with a fork in his hand and drop it, and then wake up and paint what he was dreaming. Right. Lovecraft would have techniques like that. He would wake up and sort of not fully awake, transcribe what he's dreaming sort of as he's still dreaming it. So this is, this is profound influence Smart. on his writing technique. That is um, so, yeah, for me, mm. Mm-hmm. For me personally, my yeah, my childhood recurring nightmare was always uh, that I was going into an aquarium store, like a fish store, and the uh, as I go deeper and deeper into the store, it gets darker and darker, and the creatures in the tanks get stranger and stranger until they're like these weird, like multi-headed, multi-part invertebrate things, and they start coming out of the tanks and trying to get me, and then that, that's usually like where the climax of the nightmare is. So very, very Lovecraftian from yeah. for me from the start. Wow. Well, I, I, now I want to ask one more question, which is, Brad, we always do a Patreon episode for the Patreon subscribers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. after dark. And mm-hmm. what are we going to do today for Lovecraft? Just to get oh, ahead of that. Yeah, I tease yeah. That. so we're going to talk about um, some reading that I've done that came across in the research. Uh, we're going to start to speculate, and it's grounded in some things that other people have uncovered about whether Cthulhu was real. <laughs> so if you want to hear that you got to subscribe <laughs> after the core episode yeah Patreon. we're going com. deep we're going deep Slash into the lore art of dark pod all right yeah. that is yeah. that was a great reading by the way brad go on thank you thank you so i want to pair that with something else from about his mother okay and then we're going to get into kind of like bi- like you know typical bi- biographical stuff okay so we had that from from the night gaunt's dreams with when he was six or seven now here's something about his mother um, uh, as relayed by a neighbor much, much later. Um, this neighbor says, I remember the, aunt, the aunts who came to the little house on Angel Street often, as I recollect. That's, that's Lovecraft's aunts. Uh, quiet, determined little New England women. Quite different from Mrs. Lovecraft. That's our Lovecraft's mom. Although Mrs. Lovecraft was a very determined person herself. I remember Mrs. Lovecraft spoke to me about weird and fantastic creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners at dark, and that she shivered and looked about apprehensively as she told her story. So Lovecraft's mother, we'll get to it, uh, she had some, some demons as well, okay? Um, and we're going to kind of get into the meat of it now, because his, his upbringing is very interesting, and as we've seen with a lot of our subjects, once you kind of start to piece it together, it almost makes sense that they produced the work that they produced. It's, 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 it's not surprising in a lot of ways. So started here at the beginning. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, was born on August 20th, 1890, Providence, Rhode Island, as we said. The only child of Winfield Scott Lovecraft. I love these names. Sarah yeah, they all sound like packs of cigarettes. <laughs> you could definitely see like, oh yeah, like a pack of Lovecrafts. Yeah, for sure. Or Winfields. 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 Smooth yeah. and satisfying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and his mother was named Sarah Susan Phillips, often called Susie. Um, the Phillips family, her side was pretty well to do. Um, and, uh, 
Lovecraft would kind of use this as a as a a means to sort of assume a long line of like gentlemanly respectability, right? He liked to there there's a there's an aspect of him there's not a little bit of truth to it, I suppose, but he wants to be part of one of the old families, you know, he wants to be kind of part of that. Um, most of the money comes from uh in within the family within the Phillips family comes from Lovecraft's maternal grandfather which is an even better name than anybody, than anybody else is in here. Whipple Van Buren Phillips, which oh, yeah. is so good. Whipple and Van then, Buren Phillips. And he looks exactly <laughs> the way that you would picture a 19th century man named Whipple Van Buren Phillips would look. It's whatever, what you're picturing, it's that. And, and I, what I love about it, Whipple isn't a nickname. Whipple is, right. he, you know, oh, yeah. his, he was born, his mother wrote down Whipple on the form. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, he, you know, he, he was one of these men of that era who, you know, I guess of our era too, but who had a number of business ventures and a lot of them went well, well, and some of them didn't and all of that. I think, I think a name um, like Whipple is a bit of a life hack for the period because they love to yeah. give, give you nicknames right back then this was a, during a time when bullying was alive and well and if you just right. give your son the name whipple it's a boy named sue <laughs> territory it is yeah yeah the, yeah the, the, nick, the nickname's built in right it's <laughs> come, come and get me yeah come and get me my name's whipple uh, uh so so um one thing is important here too while i'm kind of sketching out the family uh Susie had a couple of sisters, the Lovecraft, Lovecraft aunts, who are feature very prominently in, in HB's life. Um, anyway, Susie gets married um, to this man named Winfield Scott. They lived together for a while in the suburbs of Boston when Winfield, HB Lovecraft's father, has a mental breakdown and is institutionalized, Ooh. sending Susie and her two-year-old son, Howard, uh, back to Providence to rely on the largesse of her father, right? So they basically move. Dad loses his mind, uh, syphilis most likely, um, and Susie and HP move back into her father's house, which luckily is this huge three-story mansion with a library of 2,000 books, you know, and, and like stables and all of these crazy things, right? So HP kind of lives privileged childhood. Um, but it's also a, kind but, of a house on the decline. Go ahead. That's tough, though, because that reminds me of, of Anna Kavan, where, yeah, you come mm -hmm. from a ton of money, previous episode, Anna Kavan, mm -hmm. but your mm -hmm. father kills himself or your father goes mad. There's, yeah, there are yeah. these tragedies in life that no amount of money will, will spare you. Right, right. No, absolutely. And, and his, his, I mean, his father goes into this institution and he never comes out. Right, that's it. Whoa. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um, yeah, he, I mean, he dies sometime later, but, but he never really comes out of the institution. Oof. Um, and that's when Lovecraft is two years old. So, um, and I'll give you kind of a quick rundown because it's a little bit haunting. And you can imagine if this story was part of your personal biography, it's a little, it's, it's, it's kind of haunting. Um, uh, he's on a Winfield, HP's father, he's on a business trip in Chicago and he's in alone in a hotel room and he starts crying out that the chambermaid has insulted him and that his wife, who's not on the trip, is being assaulted on a floor above him and that he like, can't get to her, right? Mm -hmm. And then his, and his hallucinations are so intense, they have to restrain him and he gets sort of power of attorney signed over to the family lawyer um, and they put him in a mental institution again. Excuse me, again, never comes out. Um, uh, now 
as we said before with that little bit about Susie's seeing, you know, let's call them night gaunts, whatever. <laughs> she's not particularly more stable than he is, really. She's, she's, she's a little bit more stable, maybe. Um, but when, with Winfield gone, Susie a little teetery, um, this relationship between Susie and HP is very, um, it's not the, be polite about it, it's not the ideal conditions for a young man, I would say. <laughs> We're talking about the devouring, this is like prime devouring mother, like Freud okay. having a field day. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, he would say nothing but nice things. Well, not nothing. He would say almost nothing but nice things about her. You know, she's, she had a great singing voice. Her piano playing was wonderful. She was a good <laughs> painter and she could speak French. Um, but she clearly became obsessed with the fact that HP was all that she had left, right? Mm. Um, lost her husband. She never remarried. Um, you know, she, she never... She was dependent on her father um, to, to raise Howard and, and, and the aunts were around and that kind of thing. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a reading about how intense. This is, again, from the DeCamp, DeCamp um, biography. Um, I recognize that the, there's, there's, um, there's this biography I'm going from, the, the Lovecraft by L. Sprague DeCamp. Uh, there's some detractors out there in the world, so we'll kind of just put everything a little bit in square scare quotes, but I think for the most part, it's reliable enough for us to kind of tell the story. Um, and Ben, if, if I say something out of this bio that you're like, that is totally wrong, you just, you know, tap me uh, with a little ruler. DeCamp okay. is, is pretty, I would say, is the definitive Lovecraft bio. That's, that's, I, I recommended it. So Okay, yeah, yeah Neil, yeah. you did, and I did some research and it was like, there's some other stuff, but a lot of it seemed kind of, there's a lot, when you get a figure like this, like Lovecraft, there's a lot of people who tried to do biographies and to really do a biography, you got to dig into the archives and you got to talk to people and you got to, yeah. He's yeah, with, with Lovecraft. Is, mm, oh, go ahead. Go on. Uh, the, with Lovecraft, the difficulty is that, that first of all, like as, as we've mentioned, the, the sheer amount of documentation is is just enormous. He has you know a hundred thousand mm -hmm. plus personal letters uh, right. that he he uh, his family kept and his friends, and also the fact that trying to assemble a psychological picture of H.P. Lovecraft, as we're going to see, is like trying to assemble a, a ten thousand piece jigsaw puzzle where <laughs> every piece in the box looks like it came from a different puzzle. He's right. he's a very hard person <laughs> to fit together psychologically. So that's yeah. that's going to be a challenge as, yeah. as we go through. But yeah, and we're yeah, going to kind of paint brush strokes around the edge and see what we get, I think. Um, so one thing, so I'm going to read this. This is, this is uh, the, the, the level of coddling and devouring mother sort of situation. Um, on their summer vacations at Dudley, Massachusetts, Mrs. Lovecraft refused to eat her dinner in the dining room, uh, not to leave her sleeping son alone for an hour on the floor above. When a teacher friend, Miss Sweeney, took the rather rangy youngster for a walk, holding his hand, she was enjoined by Howard's mother to stoop a little, lest she pull the boy's arm from its socket. When Howard pedaled his tricycle along Angel Street, his mother trooped beside him, a guarding hand upon his shoulder. This vigilance increased rather than relaxed the older Howard grew. So she had that, that mother hen, devouring mother sort of, influence on him and sure. his his aunts were only slightly better in this regard though they did kind of let him grow up a little bit more than she did um she would Susie would lead him let him eat whatever he wanted to eat so he never he never 
And this probably didn't help him. <laughs> he had a, like a rapacious appetite for sweets, never really ate any vegetables. He was disg- absolutely disgusted by seafood, which I think is interesting. Um, uh, in, in the case of Lovecraft, and that not, you know, for most yeah. people, you know, whatever, you're into love seafood or you're not. Um, she also, in her wish to have a girl, would uh, constantly emphasize his feminine attributes, his curly hair that she let grow out until he was, you know, sort of forced him to grow out until he was six. Um, there were even times when he was very young that Lovecraft would say that he was a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, be, mostly because Susie was sort of, you know, sure. indoctrinating him in, in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, she showed him basically zero physical intimacy. So she wasn't like hugging him and giving him, a, you know, giving a little pat on the head, giving a little kiss, giving him encouragement, that kind of thing. So, so on the one hand, you get this like clamped down, uh, I guess you could call it love, but it's this like this pathological kind of control thing. And the other, you're not giving any of the, the positive aspects that might come out of that sort of thing. Wow. This sounds like a recipe for cuckoo for cocoa right. puffs. Here. It really yeah. does. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it does. just, yeah. Just to, hi- just to uh, expand a little bit on some of the things sure. Brad said, his mother would actually dress him sometimes in girls dresses and petticoats and sure. refer-, refer to him as her little girl. And uh, later in adolescence would actually begin to tell other people that he was too ugly to appear in public and would tell him that. Yeah. Just just to highlight that even more. Yeah. Yeah. And even when he was like a little bit later in life, when he was a kind of reclusive, like adolescence and things and adolescent, um, she would, she would tell people that the reason he didn't leave the house was because he was so hideous and he was ashamed of people seeing oh, him. Man. So that became, you know, wow. it becomes part of the narrative. And later on when he has the one romantic relationship of his life, which we'll talk about, he tries talking to this woman and basically says, I can't understand how anybody would love somebody as hideous as me. And, you know, he's not like a dashingly handsome man, maybe, but he's not, he's an ordinary, he's, a, he's just a, a guy. <laughs> He's a normal-looking guy. Place me in time. What year are we when he's a child, roughly? Uh, 18, he's born in 1890. It's so interesting because uh, we have yet to do the Hemingway episode, which we mm-hmm. will inevitably do. It's but the same year, 1892. Hem- I think maybe roughly the same range. And uh, th- this tactic or whatever it was, this approach of dressing little boys up as girls was not wholly uncommon. They would do it as a kind mm-hmm. of a little, it was like a little play that they would do. And Hemingway's mother dressed him as a little girl and uh, uh, rather famously as well. Yeah. The only other one I can think of is Charles Manson. Yeah, well, I just, I'm just really, really glad that nobody ever gave H.P. Lovecraft a guitar. Right. Yeah. It was a common practice in this period. Absolutely. I think that Lovecraft's mother's tendency to describe him as a girl, I think indicates that she actually wanted a girl. She seems, that seems to have been the the general tone of the whole thing. Hers was like one notch or two notches higher than, 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 yeah, agreed. Agreed. That's, that's kind of what I get out of it as well. Um, Nonetheless, you know, clearly Lovecraft is a pretty gifted person. And so you see that in his childhood, you know, he's uh, reading at three, uh, writing at four. Um, He had this entire library, Whipple Van Buren Phillips's library of 2000 books that was sort of at his disposal. Um, And uh, his grandfather, apparently, it seems to be by all accounts, I can come across a very, very positive influence. You know, he's a he's a somewhat educated man 
Um, he traveled, particularly in Italy, um, and he lived kind of like a gentleman of old. You know what I mean? Um, and this was an influence. This was a huge influence on on, on Lovecraft, actually. Yeah. He would, Whipple would actually speak with a, an affected British accent and teach Lovecraft to speak with that right. accent, which Lovecraft would, would continue to use uh, not only in his writing, but to some extent in his personal interactions uh, throughout his life as speaking mm-hmm. himself as sort of one of the better class of people, right. and this, right. sort of, this sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it bequeathed him a library of 2,000 books, which was one of the largest classics libraries, if not the largest private classics library in New England at the time, original oh, right. works in Greek and Latin. So as Lovecraft, you know, at this age, he is reading, you know, detective stories and dime novels and all that too. But then he's also reading, you know, Thucydides and Cicero in the original Greek and Latin. And this is his pleasure reading as a kid. That's, so, yeah. So yeah. Now, I mean, yeah, he's, that's, uh, so, you know, for a guy who was, we're going to find out didn't graduate high school, he had a sort of a, a, uh, a great maybe home we could call that a homeschool sort of situation right where, where he's yeah. definitely he's definitely exposed to all of these things is um, the word sheltered a good word we're talking about here this he was never a boy scout well he he did have some degree of adventuring but i would say he's fair i would say he's fairly sheltered well well there, there's this two, sort of two-pronged thing his mother yeah, is sheltering he, him and his father his grandfather is like telling him creepy ghost stories until you know late at night so so kind of yes and no i guess it's it's, it's our it's one of the, the first times we're going to encounter this continuing theme of the puzzle pieces that don't seem to come from the same puzzle he is being mm-hmm. you know dressed dressed as a girl and told that he's a girl and sheltered and at the same time we have stories of him playing detective and pirate in the woods with his friends he's mm-hmm. he's playing playing war playing guns with his friends he likes to dig in the garden he's a very rambunctious kid he likes to put on magic shows for the family so it's yeah it's not an easy psychological picture to fit together yeah okay. yeah yeah um and in in one of the the early books that is an influence on him in a number of ways is um arabian nights uh and this begin this prompts a sort of a lifelong he has a lifelong fascination with the Middle East, the mystery and mystique and aesthetics of the Middle East, the, the you know, the, this notion as the cradle of civilization, that the, you know, religious wisdom comes from there, the desert. The Orient. The Orient. The serious right? it's, Orient. It's, yeah, you can kind yeah. of hear, you can kind of hear the music and the, you know, he's very, he was very fascinated with this and he gave himself then he was putting on magic shows when he did this right when he yeah, he would put on he would put on magic shows as a kid for his family and he would dress up in his idea of uh, arabic dress whatever that yeah. was and he would use the name abdul al hazred which was sort of an arabization of uh, of his he had some cousins whose last name was hazard so this was his mm. way of sort of trying to arabize that but abdul al hazred is a completely incoherent attempt at an arabic name <laughs> he would right. lovecraft would later use it as the name of the author of the necronomicon the famous book that is the the center of his uh, sort of eldritch literature in his mythos but abdul al hazred for, for all of lovecraft's erudition in latin and greek um abdul al hazred the name in Arabic means uh, son of the the Hazred. So it doesn't even it doesn't even actually mean. And actually, in Arabic, it should be Abdul Ah Hazred with an H. So it's, it's Lovecraft. You know, he's he's willing to go to the mat on Greek and Latin conjugations. You know, when he he writes at one point a story set in Roman Britain, in which characters are actually speaking period accurate Latin and using like youth, uh, idioms from the correct period in Roman history. But when he's writing about a character from the Arabic world, he can't even be bothered to look up uh, an actual Arabic name. Right. right. <laughs> and, uh, 
whatever comes to hand. Yeah. This, this will yeah, come back yeah. later in his, in his fiction too. And uh, it, 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 throughout, throughout his fiction, he's going to other, other uh, groups of people like uh, the horror at Red Hook is going to be one of his later stories where Kurdish mm-hmm. devil worshippers, quote unquote, show up. And H.P. Lovecraft can't even be bothered to look up what language Kurdish people speak or what their religious beliefs are. And so right. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it, the, the theme that kind of goes on throughout his work is that uh, when it comes to the West, he always is going to primary sources. When it comes to the Orient, he's always going through his own biases and through English speaking authors who are exoticizing these. So he's a bit of a proto weeb. He has like an anime avatar and has taken one semester of Japanese and has lots of opinions about (laughs) Japan. He is a proto redditor in so many senses. We're going to get into it. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, so he gets so you start to see kind of his influences there with Arabian Nights, and there's something um, the the I guess metafictional quality of Arabian Nights even starts to you can kind of see that. Well, cause, pausing for kind of a second or sidebarring for kind of a second, I mean, something what I was most impressed my my sort of favorite Lovecraft story is probably a little cliche, but I think Call of Cthulhu is to me is the best Lovecraft story. And part of the reason I like it so much is this way in which it is, it accomplishes, it accomplishes its effect by these multiple um, sort of vectors occurring at once, right? It's, it's a, somebody, my, you know, my, my great uncle found an object and I'm going through his things. And then in the course of that, I talk to somebody who has a story from it and it's, it's, it's building this world because the world exists from all these different aspects. And to me, that's an, that's, that's something that's going on in Arabian nights, right? That's a story within a story within a story. And, and yet, strangely, in the Call of Cthulhu, as far as the protagonist, nothing really actually happened no. to the protagonist. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it like you could, you could, a valid summary of the Call of Cthulhu is a guy reads his uncle's letters. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Right. No, for sure, for sure. And, and uh, but I mean, again, I keep coming back to Twitter as a metaphor. But imagine our graves with the QR codes that, that are going to be on our graves, <laughs> and oh, your your great grandson comes up with his contacts and presses the button and then suddenly he's inside your mind yeah. as you're living through COVID oh, oh, and oh, yeah. slowly going mad. There's a story. I know yeah. I could see I could see a great 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 grand nephew whatever um, just spending hours trying to figure out a single tweet of mine that I barely meant as a oh. joke. Yeah. I'm going to make an NFT for that. People are going to have to pay for that if they want to do that with my right. <laughs> yeah. this is This is quite a good point, though, that you're making, Ben, this idea that nothing happens in the story. That, of course, is sort of the ultimate narrative horror. So you're, yes. you're mixing in this metaphorical nihilism or this sort of this this darkness um, in the very structure of the thing that you're, that you're doing. He influenced so many people. I think, isn't... Yeah. Wasn't Wallop, didn't Wallabeck write a... Well, a yes, Wellbeck, uh, 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 yeah, that's another source that uh, Brad and I both used uh, as we're okay. working on this yeah, episode. Um, is, and uh, one of the things that Wellbeck actually says is that uh, there is something not very literary about Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. to your yeah. point, yeah, absolutely. There, it's, 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 it's not quite narrative fiction. It's, some, it's something a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you see this... Well, we'll we'll get into it because there's 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 part of the um, the there's something about when p- other people write in the Cthulhu world 
um, that that it works better than there's a lot of you know we both know we all three of us know there's a lot of like fan fiction out there um and i'm sure there's there's some gold out there but there's something about writing in the cthulhu mythos that doesn't feel like fan fiction anymore it feels like participating in um in in, in its own it's its own sort of genre it's a, its own it doesn't feel like you're just sort of riffing on it the, because there's no characters i guess yeah there's, what it is, there's, right? there's no there's not a single protagonist in lovecraft other yeah. than uh, one character there's one character randolph carter who recurs in a few of the dream cycle stories mm-hmm. but yeah in the, in the core cthulhu mythos stories there's not a single human character who recurs there's not even a, sing, a single human character who you can tell apart from any no of they're they're interchangeable yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely it's it's and it's fascinating it's fascinating that it works so well um so kind of getting back to like kind of starting to give you an impression of who who he is more and more so um yeah so there's time he will affect a a british not even a british it's like a it's a it's a fake accent right yeah Yeah. (laughs) like a like a pretending to be british accent um uh interestingly enough faulkner did the same did the same thing um uh but he was he was he sort of fetishized the 18th century really um and and kind of was a, a person who believed that you know probably believed that he belonged more rightly in that century than he did in 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 his own um his writing style somewhat reflects that too i mean this is the 18th century is there's a lot of great literature from every century but the 18th century is before anybody figured out show don't tell as a writing instruction. <laughs> I shouldn't say anybody, but, but you know what I mean? Like you could, you could get a, you could, um, the kind of, the kind of sentence by sentence style that Lovecraft may have wrote in makes more sense in the 18th century idiom than in his own. And yet he's doing these crazy and in, in innovative things, which is part of the sort of the, the strange brilliance of the whole project. Yeah. It's this it, anachronistic style of prose, but doing something really modern in terms of theme. Is mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. It, it, it comes back. It comes back again to the the library that he inherits from Whipple. It's uh, in addition to the classics. There's a lot of works from the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, well, again, while Lovecraft is also reading dime novels, uh, like the other kids, he's reading you know Don Quixote and Dante and Milton and Moby Dick, and this is his pleasure reading growing up. Right, so, right. So he's putting those yeah. things together. So let's uh, let me give you a little bit from a, another Lovecraft letter that's sort of on this theme. Um, I think I am probably the only living person to whom the ancient 18th century idiom is actually a prose and poetic mother tongue, the naturally accepted norm and the basic language of reality to which I instinctively revert despite all learned, learned tricks. I would actually feel more at home in a silver button coat, velvet, small clothes, three cornered hat, buckled shoes, Ramillies, Bob wig, steam Kirk cravat, and all that goes with such an outfit from sword to snuff box than in the plain modern garb that good sense bids me wear in this prosaic era. Meanwhile, what you don't hear is he's spelling most of this in like the old timey. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Like yeah. prosaic is spelled P-R-O-S-A-I-C-K, you know? Yeah. He, um, he, lo- he loves to spell showed S-H-E-W. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. I have, I've always had subconscious feeling that everything since the 18th century is unreal or illusory, a sort of grotesque nightmare or caricature. People seem to me more or less like ironic shadows or phantoms, as if I could make them dissolve into thin air by merely pinching myself awake and shouting at them. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the many such cases 
I think a lot of people still feel this way, but don't know how to articulate that. Of all the people we've done so far, Brad, you could find yeah. all the episodes at artofdarkpod.com. Is Faulkner maybe the most mm -hmm. adjacent? I think so. I think not only in um, sort of birth, you know, when he was born, but uh, but also the the um, the the fact that it's a sort of a, a once respected family kind of on the decline. The Faulkner family mm. was was reputable for maybe a few more generations than 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 Lovecraft's, but but he's in a house a huge, you know, a state kind of house, but it's on the decline. Money is sort of gradually dribbling out and there's not, there's no new business ventures right, happening. Right. So there's definitely that. Um, and then, you know, they probably read a lot of the same work, to be honest, because Faulkner had his kind of dalliance with the pulp world too, right? He worked in Hollywood and, and he wrote Sanctuary yeah, yeah. and all that. I'm so, thinking about so Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde too, for some reason, although that's maybe, he was maybe a little. Yeah, I think, I think more of Kafka. Kafka yeah, is one who I really Kafka. think of. Yeah, yeah okay. that's def there's definitely right. some over. Yeah, there's, there's maybe a, a Venn diagram where there's Faulkner, Kafka, Kafka. Grab and, bits and, and bobs yeah. and go, okay. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and one, who you haven't, one who you haven't done, Borges. Lovecraft always yes. makes ah. Borges. Yeah, we're, well. we're going to do Borges. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So, um, so kind of continuing on here, you know, talking about these contradictions in his nature, he's still a boy. I think that when he's a boy, I still like, I still want to emphasize that, you know, he, um, he put, you know, we said he puts on magic shows, but he's also digging, Ben, you were saying he built Roman, like Roman style aqueducts in the back. Yeah, he actually, he had his mom apparently set aside a section of the yard or the garden for him to do his own digging in. And he was obsessed with uh, Roman architecture in this period. And he actually dug a system of canals and little miniature Roman aqueducts uh, by, by uh, uh, his, his own account <laughs> in the garden to irrigate uh, flower beds that he planted. And he would build little castles and forts and things there and sort of had had his own little world. Uh, the garden was his own little world in miniature. Uh, and, he, and he engineered it all to his own specifications. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So he's got that, right? And then he's also gets, um, he gets very interested in, in the sciences. He gets very interested in chemistry and astronomy. Um, and at some point, he's fairly young. I had the year and it looks like I don't have it now. Um, but fairly young, he starts into doing like handwritten you'd call them periodicals, magazines or newsletters or whatever. One was called the Scientific Gazette, where he basically would just summarize things that he read in his chemistry textbook. And the other was the Rhode Island. And we're talking about, it, like, this is childhood. I think he's like 10 years old or thereabouts when he's putting these out, when he's sort of making these. Um, and the Rhode Island Journal of Astronomy, which again, he's sort of just writing things that he knows about astronomy in these. And I find this very charming personally because I made comic books when I was like in elementary school. My friends and I would get together and we would draw comic books and then we would like get one of our moms to go Xerox them at work. And then, you know, you'd have like five copies of this like 12 page comic book. And yeah, was, kids yeah. do that. That's adorable. Yeah, That's so is. good yeah. for kids. We need, yeah, yeah. We need to keep doing stuff like that. Yeah. I had a, I had a sci-fi magazine called uh, Astro Magazine. It was a little zine that I printed yeah. on my family's, you know, with print shop on my family's computer. Yeah, yeah it's cool. It's great, man. Right. And so, so Lovecraft yeah. is doing this, except it's like 1897, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Um, now, 1904 comes around. Um, oh, well, well, okay, we'll get back to the amateur journalism stuff. But 1904 comes around. This is important because what happens is Vipple, 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 Whipple Van Buren. 
<laughs> Whipple Van Buren uh, dies. He leaves $5,000 to each of his daughters. That includes Susie Lovecraft's uh, mother and $2,500 to Lovecraft. Now, that's kind of a lot of money. Um, I didn't look up that year specifically, but we're talking probably 30 to 40x for to get into um, today's dollars. So, you know, Lovecraft gets left something like, um, well, I don't know, what's 40 times 2,500? A million dollars? Uh, it's not a <laughs> no, small no, it's chunk not. of change. No, it's not. I don't yeah, think it's a million dollars. It's a lot. It's a it's a hundred thousand dollars. It's a hundred thousand dollars. Hey, that's I not can't. nothing. Uh, you're a kid. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of an inconvenient amount of money because it's it's enough to buy like a car, but it's not really enough to like make, build Live a on. life on. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Tell me about it. Hoof. No, I can't believe it. I can't believe I couldn't do that math. I'm a little, I'm a little embarrassed. Yeah, that's always, um, look, you know, I, one thing that I'm I word, noticed I'm is word that- selling right now. That's what I'm saying is that, right. Yeah, and so you, Lovecraft is a word sell and a shape rotator. I'm <laughs> <Right>. noticing this. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, when Whipple dies, they have to move. So they have to move, right? They move three blocks away. Um, and I've got a little, little thing to read about this moment in Lovecraft's life because it's a big deal. Um, you know, you grew up in this huge house with a, you know, this big library and, and, and stables and, and a yard where you can build Roman aqueducts and, um, you know, and, and not only leaving the house, but also his grandfather passing, who was clearly a big, um, a big influence on him. So this is Lovecraft writing about this move. For the first time, I knew it a congested, servantless house. I thought that was interesting, servantless, with another family in the same house, was. There was a vacant lot next door, which I promptly exploited as a landscape garden and adorned with a village of piano box houses, but even that failed to assuage my nostalgia. I felt that I had lost my entire adjustment to the cosmos, for indeed, what was HPL without the remembered rooms and hallways and hangings and statuaries and staircases and paintings? and yards, and walks, and cherry trees, and fountain, and ivy-grown arch, and stable, and gardens, and all the rest. How could an old man of 14, he was always calling himself an old man, readjust his existence to a skimpy flat and new household program, an inferior outdoor setting in which almost nothing familiar remained? Oof. So this was, this was a big, this was a big deal, this, this move. Um, yeah. No more building aqueducts in the garden. No more building aqueducts in the garden, right? Downgrade. Um, yeah. We've gone from status to something like, I guess, middle class, not mm -hmm. so, something sort of. like that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're yeah. living off of, and, and he's now, he's living with, um, uh, he's living with his mother and, you know, she's a single mother. She's not sort of employed and, and um, he doesn't have the, the counterbalancing influence of his grandfather anymore either. So, so you're kind of now you're rat, whatever the, the pathologies of his relationship with Susie are, whatever those are, they're getting ramped up now. Right. Mm. And they're, you know, he doesn't have a place to escape. He can't the go into the walls are closing in. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What a, a sensitive person. That's something I'm noticing. He's just, Oh, he's incredible. Yeah. He's sensitive. Uh, yeah. Oh, he's a human nerve ending. Yeah, <laughs> he really is. He really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. absolutely. Um, he does. Um, oh, actually, shortly after his grandfather died, his uh, his beloved cat um, died. His beloved cat named uh, N Word Man is the closest uh, we're going to get on this episode. Yikes! Well, that's yeah. what he named his cat. That's it was a. I'm not. Uh, you know what? Go talk to the people on on Twitter about it if you want to. <laughs> Yep. How yeah. long? How long had he had the cat? I mean, his. I mean, he had it. I think since it was a kitten. I think he named it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, as far as I could tell. All right. So, um, so yeah, so that's there. Um, uh, now he enters high school and you would think that a guy like Lovecraft would have this terrible time in high school, but I think he actually, I really do actually, I want to bully him. Yeah. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) He could use a good shove. I suppose. And I am not that guy. I'm really not. I was the I was, but I want to, yeah. <laughs> but listen, listen to his description of the um, intellectual vistas that open up for him in high school. So this is again reading reading a um, reading a, a letter. Um, first year physics opened problems connected with the nature of visible phenomena and the operation of the universe, which uh, my earlier chemistry and astronomy had not even suggested. Was it possible that educated men knew things about the basic structure of a cosmos, which invalidated all my confidently held concepts? And God, what a surprise history was proving. The whole pageantry of the Byzantine Empire and its hostile connection with that gorgeous Islam, which my early Arabian nights and my later astronomical studies had made close to me, swept unheralded on my sight. And for the first time, I heard of the lost Minoan culture, which Sir Arthur Evans was even then busily digging up in Crete. Assyria and Babylonia too stood out with greater impressiveness than ever before. And I heard at last of the internal query of Easter Island. What a world. Why, good God, a man might keep busy forever, even in an, un- even in an uncongenial environment, learning new things. So we see here something where Lovecraft can actually find a little meaning in life. He, loved, he did love to learn things. He wanted to figure out chemistry, even though he would kind of prove to not be particularly left-brained in that manner in terms of like making a career of being a chemist or something along those lines but he was interested in it same kind of same goes for astronomy same goes for history same goes for religion even though he was a lifelong atheist in his own words um you know same for all of these things he was a he was a preternaturally and precociously interested person which is is to me maybe among his most excuse me among his most redeeming qualities um, and probably how you get to write this innovative work that really nobody has ever seen before is because he's willing to pull from all these different places. Um, and really a romantic when it comes to nature and the sciences. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you hear a little bit of uh, Shelley and Byron in that, uh, you know, just mm-hmm. the, the wonder of the cosmos. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's, 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 yeah, he's a little bit younger, especially when he's younger, there is a sense that he's a little bit in love with the world. Um, and unfortunately, I think that kind of goes away um, to a certain extent. I'm going to kind of, well, yeah. So here's the thing. <laughs> he doesn't graduate <laughs> high school because right. in 1906, he has a nervous breakdown. Uh, uh, like it's not father, really like per- son. Yeah, it's yeah. not particularly well explained. And despite Lovecraft's voluminous letters, um, these breakdowns aren't really described in detail by him. I mean, he will refer to the fact that he, he had them um, and that these periods were, say, difficult, but he won't really go into what the particular you know, convolutions of the neuroses actually were, generally speaking. Um, part of the problem, I think, and this isn't, this isn't to cast aspersions on a person that's having a nervous breakdown. I mean, that's something, you know, mental health is a serious thing and these things need to be um, sort of dealt with and, and, and aided to whatever extent they can, can. I don't think it helped Lovecraft that he was surrounded by people coddling him all the time. I think there probably 
would have been some benefit to somebody just telling Lovecraft to suck it up occasionally. <laughs> and, and, not, and again, not, this isn't to say, you know, depression is real and if, you know, go talk to somebody and all of that. But I don't think it would have hurt for someone, you know, to, well, to you, give him an encouraging that, shove. you feel that acute absence of the father here. Yeah. Particularly in a society that is as still patriarchal and uh, masculine as that period mm. would have been. Yeah. So yeah. you can see how this would put him deeply at odds with, with his contemporaries and with the world around mm. him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Can I just read a brief mm -hmm. uh, excerpt? This is a letter oh, that please he wrote. Do. Yeah, this is a letter that he wrote uh, during this period. He's 17 years old and it says, I perceive now that I am becoming too aged to feel any pleasure. This is Lovecraft at 17. Unsympathetic times have let their ferocious grip fall on me, and I am 17. Big boys don't play with dolls' houses and pretend gardens, and, full of sorrow, I must cede my world to a younger boy who lives the other side of the garden. And after this time, I will never again dig the earth or make paths and roads, because the fugitive joy of childhood will never be known again. Adulthood is hell. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oof. And he's, I mean, you know, he's not wrong about that, right? Mm. Um, but, but, you know, part of the thing too is, 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 you know, he's coming from money, but not enough money. Um, he's never really sort of told he's got it. He's never really, you, you get the sense that he was never really given the talking to about it. He's got to grow up. He, they had just enough money that he could kind of skate by without really ever taking responsibility you know, and that sort of thing. Um, he doesn't end up graduating high school. Um, his, his mother kind of takes him, takes him out when he, she feels like he needs to be out and he kind of malingers around the house. Um, and then he, he takes, I think, a reduced course load in what would be his senior year, 1907, 1908. And then after high school, for f about five years, he would essentially live as a recluse. Um, and we're not talking about necessarily he's, um, in this period, you know, he's not feverishly writing the, the great works that he would come to be known for in this period, right? That he's all comes he's writing a lot of letters though. He's he is writing, writing a lot of letters. Yes. He's, yes, he's, yes. Today he would be locked in his room on Reddit 14 hours a day. He's, be yeah. he's becoming, he's becoming a neat he is becoming a neat. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a neat. He's a little bit of a neck beard. He's very, um, uh, and, and he has some of the qualities of those kind of characters that we, you know, kind of come to know, like he's, um, well, we're going to get into the, we'll get into that later. He's, 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 frankly, he's, he's a racist. Uh, <laughs> he's a reactionary. He, he does he's sound a, like a bit of a bigot. He has yeah, the oriental yeah. fixation. Uh, yeah, go on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes, it goes beyond that. We'll, we'll get, I think the, the proper place to really contextualize that is when he eventually moves to New York. But it's yes. still it's it's here now already in his letters and in, in the things that he's reading. Um, I want to read you a description um, from again from a neighbor um, about how sort of reclusive he is in this five year period after high school. Um, and I have a speculative theory about this five year period that we'll talk about in the after dark in when we answer the question of is Cthulhu real. Um, okay, so this is from a neighbor. And this is describing the five year in that five year period. As a little girl, I was scared to death of him. 
for he used to walk rapidly up and down Angel Street at night, just as a group of us were playing hare and hounds at the corner of Angel and Patterson Streets. His appearance always frightened me. He was certainly the neighborhood mystery. He would never speak to any of us, but kept right on with his head down. Once in a while, I would pass him in the day, but never could get him to say hello. Right. Um, And then here's another part that just happens to be right here. He's describing this mysterious collapse that happened in 1908. The deadly fatigue and lethargy which accompany a state of health such as that under which I have been staggering for 10 years or more. At times, the very effort of sitting up is unsupportable, and the least added exertion, exertion brings on a sort of dull tiredness, which shows itself in the lagging brilliancy and occasional incoherence of my literary and apostolatory productions. I am only about half alive. A large part of my strength is consumed in sitting up or walking. So there's some physical, there's a physical aspect to this too. Um, And there's one thing he seemed to have, which was his body, he he didn't have, he wasn't able to regulate his body temperature very well, apparently. Yeah, poikilothermism, he called it. Yeah, that's the word I was Uh, looking for. I was trying to find it. Yeah, and it's, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I'm not, I don't know that it was ever medically diagnosed, but he claimed that he was effectively cold-blooded. He was, he had a reptilian metabolism, was what he claimed. Okay, all right. right. (laughs) Yep. A little bit quirky there. A little bit quirky. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, so you know, this is this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. We've got a couple more brush strokes to get in there, but one thing that's happening in this five-year period is he's reading a ton. I mean, this has got to be what's happening, right? So um, he's reading, uh, and he's also continuing with you know the, the various scientific studies he's doing, chemistry and, and astronomy and and so forth. But he's he's studying. He's you know he's he reads the Bible. He reads Jules Verne. He reads Edgar Allan Poe, which is one of his greatest um, influences. He reads Lord Dunsany, which is probably even maybe even a bigger influence. He reads Machen. He reads Blackwood, the sort of the classic weird fiction forerunners to Lovecraft. Um, uh, so he's reading. Oh, this is where we start getting precursors to the pulp magazines too, like Argosy, All Star, Cavalier. Um, these these are be these are sort of the forerunners to weird tales in which which Lovecraft would eventually sort of make his bones to the degree that anybody came to know Lovecraft it would be through weird tales and these magazines the, the sort of proto versions of these magazines are going on while while Lovecraft is in this after um, his post high school doldrums kind of phase. And not just um, magazines, but books, actually, like Dunsany, Machen, and Blackwood. All yeah. three of them were recognized as not necessarily A-list celebrities, but, I mean, they were well-known authors at this time. Yeah. Um, Edgar Allan Poe and Ambrose Bierce, of course, are still known today. We read, you know, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge in high school and The Raven. Uh, but but Dunsany, Blackwood, and Machen were as famous, if not more famous, than Poe and Bierce at this time, when Lovecraft oh. is 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 a, is a teenager. Um, oh, really? So Black- I didn't realize. I didn't realize how well known they were. I, I knew they, they, they were. Yeah, but- Blackwood. Blackwood actually had his own radio show on the BBC where he would uh, read stories. Um, he was very popular. Um, Dunsany, Lovecraft actually, uh, during this period, I think, I want to say it was 1919 when Lovecraft was in his early 20s, so a little after this period, actually meets Dunsany on a transatlantic book tour. So he actually goes to see Dunsany, uh, drags himself out of bed on a rare, one of these rare occasions when he leaves the house to go to another town and uh, get his book uh, signed by Lovecraft, uh, sorry, by Dunsany and uh, sort of say, I love you, senpai. 
And, uh, you know, Ma Arthur Machen also uh, was uh, popular enough that his novels were getting printed and distributed as uh, paperbacks on the front at World War One uh, during World War One. And that's actually that's another thing that we really um, kind of should bring in as context here is that this is, you know, going into 1914, 1915, this is the start of World War One. And during wartime periods, there's always a resurgence in horror and an excavation in the horror authors of the past. And during World War One, of course, this is the time when Kafka is producing a lot of his stuff. Um, there's a resurgence of influence in Ambrose Bierce and Edgar Allan Poe, Bierce himself being a Civil War veteran. Uh, there's a resurgence in like werewolf and vampire tales, Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker, gothic romance, vampires and werewolves, all this kind of stuff is coming back into the cultural mainstream as it always does in times of war. And uh, Blackwood, Machen, and Dunsany are sort of the, the modern masters the, 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 uh, around uh, 1890s to 1910s, mm -hmm. uh, the, the forerunners, uh, the, the, the forefront of this movement. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And I knew I knew uh, a bit about Blackwood and Machen. The Lord Dunsany was was he's such a fascinating figure, right? I mean, he's like he lived in a castle or something. Like he was an actual yeah. baron, right? Yeah, he actually was. His his full name is Edward Plunkett Drax Baron Lord Dunsany. So I, I think I miss, might even be missing some parts of it there. Right. It's one of those British. <laughs> it's one of those British names that there's like eight parts to it. Right, right. Um, right. And yeah, he he is a, an extraordinary writer. He was, uh, by all accounts, sort of a Byronic, uh, you know, Anglo-Scots man man's man with a with a big mustache, you know, like to go mm -hmm. hunting in the countryside. Um, but he created, he was sort of a Tolkien before Tolkien. He mm. created uh, stories that you could consider proto-fantasy. Um, one of his most famous books, uh, which I actually have a first edition of, is called The Gods of Pagana. It's a collection of short stories, which are they are a collection of uh, mythological tales, basically, set in a fictional world called Pagana. The inspiration hmm. from the Arabian Nights is obvious, but it's, you know, it, people come to, thieves come to steal treasure, idols come to life. There's stories of the creation of the world and cataclysms that the gods are responsible for and great battles between empires that the gods take sides on. And uh, this all takes place, some of it takes place in the uh, primordial past of uh, of Earth before, you know, the time before writing. Some of it seems to take place in a dream world. So again, we have a tie there to Lovecraft's childhood dream world, which is hugely important to him uh, as a kid and will become important later in his fiction. Uh, but so in, in many ways, Lovecraft feels very connected to Dunsany. So you can see why this is a guy, when Dunsany is doing his, his book tour in New England, you can see why Lovecraft is willing to drag himself out of bed and uh, get in a motor car to go to another town to get, to get Dunsany to sign his book he's like this guy gets it this guy yeah. writes this guy is speaking straight to my soul yeah i think i think you you sort of said this but 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 i want to like double strike on this point the first time i think that lovecraft leaves providence for like several years is to go see dunsany yep yeah sure. yeah um which it, it, there's something interesting about this too about the fact that that lovecraft is from rhode island which is this tiny like Rhode Island is the closest state we have to a fictional state. If you don't, <laughs> right? Like, it's so, it, this is no dismissal of Rhode Island people. I, I don't know anything about Rhode Island, to be honest, other than what I've Whoa, read. Whoa, it is going to come in so hot. At Brad Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wrote all, what are, all, what are, all five of the people who yeah, live in Rhode Island. Right. <laughs> You're coming after me. What have you done, Brad? Yeah, I like to. I pick. I pick enemies that I can crush in one hand. You know, uh, pun punching down. Mm. 
but there's something about Lovecraft being from there. It's like it, you could you could write a story that where you just invented a s- tiny little state, right? And it would be Rhode Island. Um, well, and it is sort of annoying. It's very evocative. Oh, I'm sorry. It is. Yeah. Not at all. No, it's just it's sort of an annoying name for a state too, because it's not an island. Uh, it, it just, yeah. it's just, it does sort of stick in your craw a little bit. I think, especially as somebody from the Midwest, it's like, what yeah. is this? Why do I have to learn this tiny place? What is the yeah. history of this? It just sort yeah. of stinks of like plantations and we're, colonialism. We're, it was, it was the Rhode Island plantation, I think, originally. It's original. The state's original name is uh, King, I believe, King James's. Uh, uh, King James's something Providence and Providence Plantation, which yeah. is actually what Lovecraft will insist on referring to it as throughout he his life. As, it, yeah. yeah, he will refer to it as Providence Plantation. Yeah. And uh, at, at times when people at public events stand up and sing My Country Tis of Thee, Lovecraft will stand up and sing the lyrics to God Save the King and then brag about oh. it to his friends afterwards. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was a loyalist. <laughs> yeah, he was a British <laughs> oh. loyalist. Wow, okay, all right. <laughs> Things yeah. are so starting just, to make we're just a lot like more off sense. the charts, off the charts, uh, neckbeard, yeah. off the charts, mm, yeah. neckbeard. Yeah, yeah. upvote, upvote. <laughs> so, so we're we're gonna we're gonna eventually we're gonna get out of this sort of this. this I, I think as I read this and as I'm processing Lovecraft and thinking about the age where all of this stuff is happening, right? The five years after your high school age, eighteen to say twenty three, which I, I know for me was this very formative period, and I because that's college years, right? So if you either went to college and you had that experience, or you didn't, and that was equally formative, but in a different way. Lovecraft spends most of this alone in his room, right? So I think this is actually critical to to make sure we get our head around. But before he comes out of it, I want to kind of make sure we we understand who we're talking about. So so yeah, so he's a loyalist, which that's bizarre. He speaks with like a British affectation. For a long time, he was wearing his father's like old fashioned clothes before he uh, eventually did give that up as well. Um, He's... uh, he is obsessed with this idea of being a gentleman, but in the old fashioned version of like, you own some land and that's how you make your living and you never dirty your fingertips, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but he didn't own any land. Right? <laughs> the closest thing that he had was his, his, um, his grandfather Whipple had owned a part of a snake river quarry claim out in Idaho. And so there was kind of some money coming, coming through from that, but that doesn't, so, so in a sense, he was like landed, but only like in the fine print. Um, but he didn't want to work and he wasn't willing to get his hands dirty. And this attitude like persisted throughout his life and it would become problematic in ways that I think are obvious, but, but in, but in other smaller ways too, he's trying to get like, he's getting editing and ghost writing work. He kind of won't ask people to pay him, you know? So, so, you know, you're doing freelance We've all done, all three of us have done some freelance work. If you don't, if you aren't willing to ask for your money, you're in rough shape. Like it's yeah. not going to, it's not going to work out for you. Lovecraft right? took all the worst parts of being an arist. He took all the snobbiness right. and the, I'm better than, I'm better than you and I'm not willing to work. And he right. left all the good parts of being an aristocrat. Right. <laughs> the, ge- the generosity. Right, the, right, know, right. Being right. a patron of the arts. Yeah. He's a real American in other words. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A Yankee. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, he was, we'll get to this more when we get to his marriage. He was curiously sexless 
And I think we'll hit on more on that when 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 he he does get married. Um, but but very little. He was. It's one of these things where I think he could present it as being um, being refined and being um, you know kind of old fashioned, but was actually probably really freaked out by sex. Is what I think. I think um, he just he, for some reason it just it just didn't connect for him. Um, I think he he might have been what today we would call asexual or demisexual, where it's like he could he could form an attachment to a particular person, but yeah, yeah that, in general, and that could be that that could be what we're dealing with too. And and I would be I wouldn't I'm a little more likely to think that he has hangups just be mostly because of his other qualities. <laughs> yeah. Right, like if everything else was sort of like more what we would think of as normal, I would. I, I wouldn't think of it so much, but to me, this fits you, in with, with his relationship with his mother uh, and this reclusiveness. And I'm just and, trying and, to imagine what a date with him would. Yeah. Well, feel he like. would pull out your chair. He would be completely mm. polite, completely. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm kind of into um, it. Okay. He's, 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 this is the thing. Everybody says this about him. He's extremely nice and polite. Oh. And, okay. and, and, you know, he has those aspects of being a gentleman, you know, mm. he's very, but um, on the, in the course of the date, he might also refer to you as my darling granddaughter. So right. <laughs> that was the thing he liked. That was the thing he liked to do. He liked to walk around in starched collars and refer to himself as old uncle Theobald and say, Oh, oh my darling granddaughter, won't you come and dandle on my knee? Which would be a little weird on a date. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> I knew if I put it out there, you'd come back with something yeah. and that, that exceeded my expectations. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He was, uh, uh, the comp says that he had a schizoid personality um, and schizoid doesn't mean, you know, it's got the same root as, as schizophrenic, but it's not quite the same. Um, there, I did have a little thing I kind of wanted to read referring to the schizoid personality thing. Um, let me quick find it. <clears throat> this is, this is from, this is from uh, Lovecraft writing to a good friend of his, Sam Loveman. My one desire is to remain inconspicuous and unnoticed. This is later in life, but I think it, it ties in. If I could render myself invisible, <clears throat> I would gladly do so. I avoid the ordinary run of human beings and have imbibed much of the philosophy of good old Bishop Berkeley, who denied the existence of matter and even the actuality of life itself. Nothing really exists for me. Dreams prov provide me with a solution to the fantastic ambiguity that we choose to call life. Right, so... This is somebody who's and he's he's in the period of Freud. Where are we? Where are we around? Freud, Freud? is uh, Freud is right around this time frame. Yeah, yeah Lovecraft sort of hates Freud. By the way, just gonna put that oh. out there. He he, okay. he 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 dismisses the entirety of Freud's work as quote unquote puerile symbolism. Yes, that's what he yeah. calls Freud. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> I yeah, don't <laughs> doubt it, but this, but this fixation, this fascination on dreams is a mm -hmm. a thing. Uh, Freud made his whole career on. There's something going on at the beginning of the 20th century, I think. Like, because we see this amongst the many people, right? I mean, Kafka, we see this in Kafka, we see this in Joyce, we see this in, in Lovecraft, we see this in Freud and Jung. Like, there is something, there's a moment that happens somewhere around the turn of the century where we, it's like a mini axial age or something where everybody starts to realize that there's, it's like European culture forgot that it had dreams and then all of a sudden it remembered one and it was like, wait, what was that? There's something very fascinating about all that. Well, and of course, again, and in Freud's whole program, well, not all of it, but it hinges so heavily on dream analysis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which 
Very interesting. Very mm. interesting. Let me give mm. you one more thing about this sort of schizoid personality thing, again, from a letter by Lovecraft. As for me, I have re- retired conclusively from the present age. In a cosmos, a cosmos of aimless chaos and upon a planet of futility and decay, nothing but fancy is of any importance. Time and space are the sheerest incidentals, and when one lived in a decadent and disillusioned age which has nothing of moment to say, it becomes a man of sense to stop wasting his time on contemporary fumbling and turn back to a period whose utterances have something in them to which his own psychology responds. So he's just a very, you know, he's a very, he's a very Lovecraftian guy. <laughs> sleep and dreams and the cosmos are, are becoming extraordinarily important to him in this period. I actually mm-hmm. wanted to tie this to, uh, there's a story that he writes shortly after this called Beyond the Wall of Sleep um, that I just yeah. want to read a few sentences yeah, do, from. Please. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Lovecraft. The, the, to give a little context on this, this is a story about a mental patient who is sort of a, a drooling idiot during the day and is, seems to be inhabited by an extraterrestrial consciousness at night and uh, begins communicating with his psychiatrist. And uh, it turns out uh, that the psychiatrist himself uh, knows the extraterrestrial intelligence from a past lifetime. And this is what, this is what the extra- extraterrestrial intelligence says to the psychiatrist through the mouth of this mental patient. He says, I am an entity like that which you yourself become in the freedom of dreamless sleep. I am your brother of light and have floated with you in the effulgent valleys. It is not permitted me to tell your waking earth self of your real self, but we are all roamers of vast spaces and travelers in many ages. Next year, I may be dwelling in the dark Egypt, which you call ancient, or in the cruel empire of Tsan Chan, which is to come 3,000 years hence. You and I have drifted to the worlds that reel about the red Arcturus and dwelt in the bodies of the insect philosophers that crawl proudly over the fourth moon of Jupiter. How little does the earth self know of life and its extent? How little, indeed, ought it to know for its own tranquility. <laughs> that is some psychedelic stuff, right? That always, I mean, it really, always makes me think of yeah. um, Rutger Howard's uh, Android monologue in Blade Runner. You know, yeah. I've seen things you people I've, can't imagine. Right, right, right. It's glimpsing, yeah, it's sort of glimpsing beyond, yeah, beyond the wall of sleep is, per, is like a perfect title yeah. for, for something like that. That's, that's kind of amazing, right? So, so clearly he's, 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 something is going on there's this and there's a couple other periods like this in in his life where there's this sort of chrysalis period and he's 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 def, he's sort of withdrawing and he's be, he's processing himself to become the lovecraft that's going to kind of come out of it he's 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 dwelling in ideas like this some of these are these beautiful efflorescences of 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 thought and imagine and imagination and others are not so great, like uh, the fact that he's becoming dramatically more racist and xenophobic uh, yeah. during this uh, during this reclusive period. Um, yeah. We are going to get more to this in New York because that's when it reaches its sort of fever pitch. But I want to give you an, an instance of of what when we talk about him being racist when he was an ardent racist. What do we actually mean? There is there is a poem that he wrote um, that is called On the Creation of N-Words. When long ago the gods created earth, in Jove's fair image, man was shaped at birth. The beasts for lesser parts were next designed, 
yet were they too remote from humankind to fill the gap and join the rest to man, the Olympian host conceived a clever plan, a beast they wrought in semi-human figure filled with vice and called the thing a... Ah, man, what is he doing writing this? That's just it's what he's on. It's, 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 uh, so again, we come back to the, the puzzle pieces that don't seem to come from the same. This is the guy who mm-hmm. writes the beautiful passage about light beings from dreams. You know, I am your brother of light. And right. then he writes, and then and he, he writes, writes this. this. Same, the same, almost the same age. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same sort of milieu. Right. So, Sheesh. so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to continue this because here's the thing. We could just ignore Lovecraft's racism and xenophobia. That's not really what we do on the show. And it's such a prominent thing in his life. It's not like he kind of disliked his Mexican neighbor. It's not that. It's like right, some a, real calculated, methodical, cosmological goes, racism. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, human, yeah. humans breeding with things they shouldn't be breeding with. That's Lovecraft. Right. I mean, right. That's, right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. the thing is, I don't think you can extricate it from his work yeah. either. Right. I don't well, and that's not what we want to do on this show. Right. This is Art of Darkness. So we focus right. on this stuff because, of course, yeah. They will cleverly paint over it because of the mm-hmm. Lovecraft, Lovecraft industry and all right. of this. But, right, uh, right. Yeah, it's such right. an interesting thing that a guy would write about, would have this, this atheism and this uh, sort of horror at the modern world would also carry this reactionary baggage and not be uh, a more enlightened, progressive uh, Yankee. Right, it's right. Very, right. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to give you one more quick rundown of a few more of his sort of idiosyncrasies. And then we're going to get, we're still kind of in this reclusive five-year formative period, but we're going to break through it in just a moment. But I want to give you just a rundown of some of his ex- other ex- eccentricities and sort of uptightnesses. Um, so, you know, in the interest of painting the full Lovecraft picture. So this is again from the, the, um, the biography. Ingrown hairs on his face bothered him all his life. The only cure for this condition is to grow a beard, but as a devotee of the clean-shaven Baroque era, Lovecraft hated all facial hair. He said, I'd as soon soon think of wearing a nose ring as of growing a mustache. Later, when some of his young literary protégés grew mustaches, or worse yet, goatees, he carped at them in letter after letter, urging them to take off the offending growths. His his skin was pale from his nocturnal habits. Um, His friend Paul Cook reported that he never liked to tan and a trace of color in his cheeks seemed somehow to be a source of annoyance. He was the only person I ever met to be ashamed of a coat of tan. He had long, oh, this is about the the temperature thing, the body regulation temperature thing. A little bit further down. In dress, he was clean and neat, but ultra conservative in taste. In his 20s, he affected an aggressively old-fashioned appearance, a sedulous cultivation of premature elderliness and sartorial antiquarianism manifesting itself in a stiff bosom shirt, round cuffs, black coat and vest, and gray-striped trousers, standing collar and black string tie, etc., with austere and reticent manners to match. He also donned black bow ties and high-button shoes and carried an old-fashioned change purse. He wore his father's elegant 19th century garments until they wore out. So we got a strange dude. This is a old strange dude. Mm. Yeah, old Uncle Theobald, right? I'm beginning to, uh, to put the pieces together, and it's beginning to occur to me that he is the monster. A little bit. There's a part of him that is for sure. 
There was a fellow when I worked at a used bookstore uh, here in the Twin Cities, there was a fellow who would come in dressed in old timey clothes and you could tell he was enjoying himself. And I, I had no problem with it. This was back when there were a lot more characters on the street. Like this mm-hmm. seems to have been cut out of a lot of public life. I don't know where it went. They must mm-hmm. have gone somewhere. But he would, he would come into the bookstore. He would peruse. He wouldn't say a word to me. But he would always pay with the Sakakawea dollars. The oh, $1. Really? Yeah, and yeah. he would pull them out of an old like an old purse or something. And he would pay, you know, if you get a book, it would be a paperback, six of them. And I'd yeah. make change for him. And he just, you could tell he was savoring the transaction. This was mm. not, he was not swiping a credit card. There was some sort of a LARP happening for him. Right. And hey, good for you, dude. Yeah. You got, you got maybe your book. We should, maybe we should all be LARPing a little bit more. We to should the, you maybe know, all return a letting, little, to some letting of this, the basilisk maybe, take our lives over. And, right. Know, yeah, true. Yeah. So yeah. I, fair to say Lovecraft, very much a man out of time. Yeah, I think that's that's maybe the one of the strongest cases for a man out of time yeah. that that you know you could really pluck out of you know artistic history at least. Did he have an opinion, a strong opinion on Nietzsche? He did read Nietzsche, I believe, or was at least passingly familiar with him. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit later when he yeah. becomes openly uh, a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, oh, fun! Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that, that the, the, fun, <laughs> the fun continues on that. In one. case, in case you didn't see that coming, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so um, in this five-year period, uh, just to kind of keep on track with the biogra- biographical kind of narrative. Um, ends sort of or he comes out of it I, I do think of this as a sort of a chrysalis period or one of a, a few that he has in which he sort of comes out of it um into being the new hp lovecraft and he comes out of it through amateur journalism um he sort of discovers this sort of coincidentally he he was doing um the Rhode Island or the Providence Science Gazette and, you know, doing these little things when he was a kid, but he kind of kept doing it. He started writing a newsletter called The Conservatives, uh, or sorry, not The Conservatives, The Conservative. Um, I think the first article had a whole thing about being, oh, I can't remember what it was. He had a, um, uh, I think the first article had was, had some kind of racist tirade in it, if I'm not I know the article that you're talking about. I can't remember exactly what he said in it, but it was basically, it was a manifesto, basically. Mm -hmm. He published his manifesto, and his manifesto was, we should go back to the 1700s. That was the Mm -hmm. time when things were correct. Everything since then has been a mistake. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, you know, aside from the race stuff, I kind of get, I I, I get that, that, tendency i i do understand the idea of like i don't like how things are and i think we should go back again the race that stuff is reprehensible but like the whole like like he didn't really like the machine the idea of like machines taking over how right? you could how could you live through because what period are we in now what year it's like 1913 yeah, we're watching the Great War kick off and Starting soon, they've yeah. already seen the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War and the mechanization of warfare, uh, which presaged what would happen then at scale in World War I. How could you be a sensitive person and not look at the conflagration in Europe and the death of the old mm-hmm. order as a kind of 
of horror. We have this bizarre fixation on modernity or modernism because we can't imagine anything else. But right. it's it's well, the amount of human suffering for, we, that the 20th yeah. century stands in for is staggering. Yeah. And yeah, go on, Brad. And we have a thing, we, we seem to have this tendency where like everything has to progress. Progress is always good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's always, it's going in the right direction because time is passing. So it must be getting better where it's like, Mm -hmm. well, hold on. Maybe it isn't always getting better. Like maybe some things are getting better and some things are getting worse. Like just, you know. Lovecraft once actually wrote to a friend. He said, what I abhor most is change in all its forms. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And meanwhile, he, meanwhile, he invents an entire genre of literature. Yeah. Right. And yet yet his stories are set in this world that's sort of not really the world that he lives in. He sets the dates as if they're happening in the 1920s and the 1930s, but it's like unusual if a character has a motor car or a flashlight. And it's like, (laughs) I remember even as a kid reading these stories thinking like, wasn't this guy writing in the 1930s? Like, how did he, why is he describing cars as if they're unusual? Right. Yeah. 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 For sure. But um, they are unusual. Cars are are weird. They are kind of a monster. They're a monster. How many people are going to die on the roads tomorrow? You know, I didn't. I didn't quote this, but I I definitely could have. He had a thing where I don't know if he flew in an airplane or something like this, and he thought it was sort of fun, but at the same time was like, "This is a terrible development." Like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like we shouldn't this is going to be a problem this this like you know the, this mechanization or this this he already has this vision of people landing in places they don't belong or planes mm. flying into buildings you can imagine mm. that yeah. you if you if you have that pessimistic outlook every new piece of technology does be, presage mm-hmm. a kind of of kind of horror mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i think i think just- i think which just creates this supreme irony that uh, so much, so many of the people who discover Lovecraft today uh, are discovering him through video games, RPGs, digital media, all, yeah, all an entire range of uh, media that he would have absolutely abhorred and had nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> That's not surprising. Uh, not surprising. But th- so he's doing this amateur journalism thing. This 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 article, the conservative. This is one of the few this is maybe the first subject we've had on the show who is like an unabashed conservative, like in temperament and um, well, even politically, he's so freaking complicated. We'll get to it. But he was like a, he was both like a, a Hitler supporter and an FDR supporter simultaneously. It's very, very strange. Bird. Well, it's, it's very interesting because when you, well, of course, when you actually, died, mm-hmm. Lovecraft died before like the Holocaust. So, so, ah. you know, who knows what he was exactly, what his image of Hitler was, isn't right. the history channel image of Hitler, but that's also not to say, it, you know, that's not to say that was okay. You know, I don't know. It's very Hitler's, uh, Hitler's own ideas about what uh, the, the post-war order would look like if, if Germany had been victorious are much different from, I think, the Hollywood clown car version that we get. He really saw a world order where America and Germany and, and German ethnics in America would rise up and there would, it would be a completely different um, sort of game plan than I think people imagine there and there was much more of an idea that ooh, maybe the west will which side are is the west gonna mm, so you know right it, right, it right. was way more complicated coming oh, up to yeah the the, war. there mm-hmm. there was an american nazi party uh, right. during world war ii so right. yeah mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into that later as we yeah talk about oh yeah 
Yeah. yeah, a good a good book to read on this if you're interested in the period running up to World War II is Human Smoke. Mm-hmm. It reads like a novel, uh, but it's not. It's and and then the other the other sort of ugly thing that people tend to forget about is how awful the British Empire was and how many people across the the planet despised the British Empire um, in the run up to that war. So yeah, there you go. A yeah. little bit of context. Yeah. Um, so moving on, just kind of keep this biographical train rolling. So um, Lovecraft develops, ends up developing a bunch of friends in the amateur journalism world. So surprisingly, he ends up developing kind of a rich social life out of this, which is, I think, interesting because he kind of finds it in his own way. How he gets there from publishing the conservative to, to being like at the center of the amateur journalism world in a, in a way is... He writes a 1,300-word declamation of the pop author Fred Jackson. Um, It's a letter written in what Lovecraft himself calls a quaint uh, Queen Anne prose style, where he basically says this Fred Jackson guy who writes in the Argosy and and some of these other pulp things, he's basically, his stories have too much romance and love in them, and they really shouldn't be in the magazine, right? Because Lovecraft, all that stuff is sort of like, you know, and so I think it's a little uncomfortable for him to read all of this stuff. But he writes this letter; it gets published, and I believe in the Arctic Argosy. And then other writers write in to criticize him, and then he writes these like responses in this like pretentious poem, poetic style. And this goes on for years. This sort of this sort of beef in the amateur journalism world. But but they're also kind of having fun with it. I think Fred Jackson and H.P. Lovecraft might even had some some unpublished correspondence with each other and i think they were sort of enjoying the 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 fun of it the drama of it right they're going back and forth he, he lovecraft really he would have a lot of fun poking fun at the tropes of popular fiction in his period if you if you ever if you think you know hp lovecraft seek go google a story called sweet ermengarde it's lovecraft's parody of like uh, melodramatic sort of snidely whiplash uh uh, romance from the early 20th century, and it's it's, it's actually really funny. It's a yeah. it's a really funny story, and it's and it's Lovecraft's probably only serious serious attempt at humor, and he does it in in, in the Lovecraft way. He does it with right. absolute 100 percent sincerity. Right. But it's uh, yeah, but he, but he, so it's it's this weird thing where he's like he he's at full you know he's up he's up to 11. He's at full blast yeah. intensity, but he's also having fun and like forming yeah. friendships. Yeah. Why do I I get the sense that Cthulhu is about to be born? We got yeah, we're getting there. We're getting we're there. Getting it there. is it's, okay. It's 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 like a lot of other things where it trickles in, mm. and then it's all of a sudden it's there. Right? It's there. It's like he, it's always been there. Go ahead. He does write a story in this period called Dagon, which mm. is a precursor to to the Call of Cthulhu, uh, and it's a it's a relatively short story. It's a, only about five pages or so. And it's about a sailor who gets wrecked on an island and finds these pre-human ruins that are all like non-Euclidean geometry and covered with strange runes. And I then there's this, this. this, yeah, there's this fish-like uh, being, this giant fish-like being who appears uh, in uh, called and whose name is Dagon, uh, which comes from a name of an ancient Mesopotamian uh, sea god, and uh, sort of chases him around the island. And then the sailor makes it back home. And then the final image of the story is that he looks out the window and sees this giant hand coming up and grabbing the window 
And uh, this is a story that uh, Lovecraft publishes in this amateur journalism period, and it, it attracts a little bit of a fandom. Again, this is not professional. He's not seeing professional print publication, but in the amateur journalism world, people are reading this and they're like, okay, okay, like this guy is out here doing some stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, and that's, that's the first, that is really the first he had written. I mean, it's not it's clearly not the first thing he'd written. He'd written other, he'd written articles and some stories, but this is the first thing that you, I think, you could say is the first Cthulhu story would be Dagon. And then he kind of gives it, he kind of walks away from it for a little while and he writes, writes the beyond the wall of sleep. But as you, as you quoted, actually is written after Dagon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, one thing I wanted to read, uh, this is, I came across my notes since we're not quite in the right place, but um, I wanted to read something um, about the, uh, <laughs> this is from the, uh, his newsletter, The Conservative, the first issue of it, which came out in, I think, 1915, he made 210 copies of it. Um, the first article is actually a complaint about simplified spelling because he likes the old fashioned spelling, right? This is his newsletter. This is his wild newsletter. Not wild, but like this, this you know, harebrained newsletter that he's trying to give to people. First article. Complain about, about um, people spelling things in a simplified modern style. The second is something called, the second article is something called the crime of the century. I'm going to read a little bit of it. The present European war occurring as it does in an age of hysterical sentimentality and unsound political doctrines has called forth from the sympathizers of each set of belligerents an unexampled torrent of indiscriminate denunciation. You can see he loves those big words. Uh, that the maintenance of civilization rests today with that magnificent Teutonic stock, which is represented alike by the two hotly contending rivals, England and Germany, as well as by Austria, Scandinavia, Switzerland, Holland, and Belgium, is an undeniably true as, as undeniably true as it is vigorously disputed. The Teuton is the summit, summit of evolution. That we may consider intelligently his place in history, we must cast aside the popular nomenclature which would confuse the names Teuton and German and view him not nationally but racially. Though some ethnologists have declared that the Teuton is the only true Aryan and that the languages and institutions of the other nominally Aryan races were derived alone from his superior speech and customs, it is nevertheless not necessary for us to accept the daring theory in order to appreciate his vast superiority to the rest of mankind. So... Yeah. Oh, okay. we got a bit of a, he's a little bit of a supremacist there. A little bit. Yeah. Little bit. He likes, yeah. he likes the, he likes the Nordic Superman a little bit. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Um, there's another thing. Um, what, early... what kind of, may I ask, what kind of yeah. drugs or substances are we dealing with here? Is this a, is he a boozer? Do we know? Nothing. Nothing. He's a abstinence. total abstinence. We will get to it. He got drunk one time in his life, but it was unwittingly. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, here's just, another he, he likes to he likes to lucid dream he's yes. a lucid yeah. dream person <laughs> right right yeah. right um, of all i must say of all the figures we've done so far on art of darkness art of darkpod.com at art of darkpod on twitter uh this is the most unusual person mm-hmm. i cannot and as as our friend ben was saying i cannot wrap my head around this guy we and we avoid psycho psychologizing on the show we're not analysts we're not trying to figure somebody out uh but this guy is just i can't pin him down it's like what richard feynman famously said about quantum physics anybody who tells you they understand quantum physics hasn't studied it enough 
Yeah, if, right. if, if, you, if you think you understand HP Lovecraft, go to, turn to the next page. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very, and in, in, in the, the, the kind of the hits keep coming in a certain way. Yeah. Like, um, but I, I am interested, this, this amateur journalism part, but so it, it, it's interesting because he becomes a very social person in an unusual sort of manner. He becomes primarily social in this, this his sort of mid-20s period through writing his newsletter, writing letters to people, which he did all the time, and in participating in this amateur journalism world. He gets, he's so involved in this that he be, joins um, the uh, National Amateur Publishers Association, and I think it's the United Amateur Publishers Association. He joins these sort of groups. He would be at varying times, we won't get into the details because there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of like internecine drama between these groups, but he gets to be in the leadership of some of these amateur journalist um, associations. Um, almost all of his friends throughout the rest of his life, he would meet either through these groups or through correspondence, people that wrote him letters. Um, some of these people would go on to have fairly prolific careers of their own, even if they're not so well known anymore. Um, Ira Al Albert Cole, who is this sort of Kansas uh, cowboy poet, uh, W. Paul Cook, who would be a close friend for many years, Samuel Loveman, who is a poet of, of some renown, um, who also introduced um, H.P. Lovecraft to Hart Crane. Lovecraft would meet the poet, the great poet Hart Crane a number of times. Um, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, who is a, a, a phenomenal writer in his own right, Robert E. Ho e. Howard, the, 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 the man who created Conan, um, and who also wrote in the Cthulhu Mythos from time to time. He would develop all of these relationships through first the amateur journalism world and then through his participation in, in Weird Tales, which, which kind of comes a little bit later. Um, the... Uh, well, I want to read one thing. This is interesting because Hart Crane is, they weren't close, though they met a couple of times. Um, Hart Crane is an episode that I want to do and I want to sort of eventually. And uh, I want to kind of give you uh, the sense of what it was like when they met each other, um, what they thought of each other. I thought I had something from Hart Crane, but maybe I don't. Um, oh yeah, here we go. Crane wrote, this is uh, after they meet um, and this is a little bit later than our timeline, but it's all, it's all good because, you know, we're talking about his social life. Um, Hart Crane wrote to his mother about Lovecraft. I've been greeted so far by his, uh, by Lovemans. That's, that's Lovecraft's friend. He has a friend named Loveman, which I think is just an interesting coincidence. Um, I've been greeted so far by Loveman's coattails. So occupied has Sambo been with numerous friends of his here uh, ever since arriving. Miss Sonia Green, who we're going to talk about a lot more. And her piping-voiced husband, Howard Lovecraft, the man who visited Sam in Cleveland one summer when Galpin was also there, kept Sam traipsing around the slums and wharf streets until four in the morning looking for colonial specimens of architecture. Until Sam told me he groan, uh, groaned with fatigue and begged for the subway. So this is, that's a little bit about their time in New York, and we'll get there. But here's Lovecraft on Hart Crane. Poor Crane. A real poet and man of taste, descendant of an ancient Connecticut family and a gentleman to his fingertips, but the slave of dissipated habits, which will soon ruin his constitution and his still striking handsomeness. Hart Crane, of course, was, was, uh, was uh, a homosexual and a, you know, and a rampant alcoholic. So 
Loveman um, was homosexual as well, I believe. Loveman was too. Um, there was yeah. another, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Robert Barlow. Um, a lot of, a fair amount of, how, this is the thing. Lovecraft, like, he, you know, he hated all these things. He spoke poor, he, there is instances of him speaking poorly of homosexuals and certainly of other races and Jews and all these things. But he marries a Jew. He's friends with homosexuals. Yeah. Uh, anytime he yeah. meets somebody who's of a different, you know, of a different race or ethnicity than him, he's eminently polite. Yeah. It's like it's all happening in his head. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not, it's almost like it's not real. In real life, he's just a, a normal A monster. Person. But some kind of a monster in his own mind. Right, right. A right. minotaur. He's, he's in his own maze, his own hell in his yeah. brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. So, um, no chill. The no. dude had no chill. Nope. No. Mm. Now, except 19... for the poikilothermism. Because, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah except for the, he's literally a lizard. Yeah. <laughs> a weird lizard Lovecraft. Yeah, licking his lips, you know, warming his fingers over a candle. Mm. Um, yeah, so, so, okay. So in 1919, he enters what I would consider to be like another sort of shutdown, withdrawal, regenerate period in which he will regenerate from. This is um, in 1919. His mother um, uh, has a breakdown. Um, so uh, let's see. Okay. So um, as she's approaching this breakdown, she brings in uh, Lovecraft's aunt who is only 13 years older than him. So, you know, that's not that, that's not that crazy of a difference. You're 20, whatever, 19, you're 29. She's in her early forties. You know, you're of the similar age. When I first read this, I kept thinking of these like old crones looking over him, but it's really not the case. She just kind of came to live with him and, and kind of keep house as Susie was breaking down because Lovecraft was living, was living with Susie. Um, Annie, just to give you kind of a little detail about Annie, because Lovecraft would live with her for a long time. She'd been married to this newspaper man. They'd had two kids. One of them died in infancy and the other had tuberculosis. So they had moved um, to somewhere in Colorado. When that son died at the age of 18, Annie, um, Lovecraft's aunt, moves back, basically moves back in with um, Susie Lovecraft and H.P. Lovecraft. Um, when Susie dies, now Annie is basically keeping house for HP, which I think it's funny. You've got this guy. It's, it's, it'd be one thing if he was like some kind of like industrialist and he was out working all the time and he had a child and then, you know, his wife died. Then there's, there's a, something that makes sense in this tradition, more traditional culture of, okay, well, the spinster aunt comes and lives with you and takes care of house. But you're just a neat sit in your room reading books. Like you don't need... <laughs> You don't need your aunt to come take care of you. You know, you're like almost 30 years old. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of pathetic. Yeah, painting the um, whole picture. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, what is he doing for money? Is this all inheritance well, now? Is he most making, of it's all, yeah. most of it's all inheritance. He's gradually starting to pick up um, uh, some ghostwriting and editing work, but, but not much at this, at this time uh, in the, like 1919, 1920. Um, it's basically living off of inheritance. He would never really have like a full-time job. He would have like occasional, he would have gigs in ghostwriting and we'll get into some, a couple of the other things that he did for work, but he never, he was a gentleman. 
So oh, gentlemen right. don't work, yeah, right? He was, yeah. Even he was if you're a, dead broke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He didn't even actually consider writing to be work per se. Yeah. He actually wrote in a letter to a, to a friend that uh, writing is not a suitable occupation for a gentleman. So here we right. just have another case where he just flagrantly contradicts his own beliefs. Right, his, right, his right, to his right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's willing to give up everything to be a right to to, to be a gentleman, but you know the thing he spends all, a lot of his time doing is, is yeah he's it's paradox upon paradox upon paradox for sure um in 1919 Susie lovecraft his mother is admitted to the same hospital that his father was admitted to so 1919 lovecraft is 29 years of age um by mid uh, 1921 um, Susie dies, apparently some complications. She'd had a gallbladder surgery and there were some complications related to that. And she, she passed away. Um, following which Lovecraft would live with, um, one or both of his aunts for basically the rest of his life, um, or at least the rest of their lives. Um, you know, despite some traveling in, in a couple of years with Sonia, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, I think there's this interesting period. So Lovecraft is starting to kind of break out and deal in this amateur journalism world. He's kind of going to some meetings and things like that, leaving Providence. Um, his mother is is on her way out. After she is institutionalized, he has a very depressive period, similar to the reclusive years right after high school, but shorter in duration. Um, and, um, well, we also... I want to back up for a second. I know this is a little out of order, but I think it's crucial to get the last little taste of what Susie was like. This is what 1918's World War One, right? Um, uh, this is what she when Lovecraft tried to sign up for World War One to go fight. This is what happened. Okay, so <clears throat> this is around uh, 1917, actually. <clears throat> Oppressed by his uselessness, Lovecraft made one serious effort to escape his mother's coddling. On April 6, 1917, so he would have been 27, the United States declared war on the German Empire. The next month, Lovecraft applied for enlistment in the National Guard. He passed the cursory physical explanation by keeping his mouth shut about his medical history and was accepted as a private in the Coast Artillery. When Susie Lovecraft heard, she was prostrated by the news. There were scenes and she and the family phys- physician persuaded the army to annul the enlistment. When conscription loomed, Lovecraft wrote, quote, my mother has threatened to go to any lengths, legal or otherwise, if I do not reveal all the ills which unfit me for the army. Oh, I'm fainting. Oh, right. you so can't send do... my boy to fight right. the crowds. Right, right, no. right, right. Yeah. yeah, that is a right. vibe, man. Yeah, yeah. Mommy so, got him out of World War I. He was literally signed up. To go and he's 27 years old and his mom got him out of it right wow so um and 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 i understand the mother not wanting the son to go that's that's a normal that's a normal feeling i think but being so vocal about it that you're able to get the military to say yeah we don't want him Right, right. That is, yeah. I mean, she, yeah. That yeah. phrase that she used, go to any lengths, legal or otherwise, it almost sounds to me like she's threatening self-harm or something. If he, right, if he right. Knows. Yeah. Yeah, like it's, who knows how, what histrionics were involved in this, right, you know, yeah. right. It was, yeah, that, right. that makes Saving Private Ryan a very short movie. <laughs> right, <laughs> so mom just doesn't You don't even happen. get out of the first act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just they're listening to, it's, it's Private Ryan sitting at home listening to it on the radio. Yeah, yeah, with his brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with his, his mm. brothers. Mm. Um, 
Um, no, okay, so that was 1917, and I kind of skipped back, but I feel like that was an important note to hit because Susie dies, Lovecraft goes into a bit of a depression, but at the same time, he's still got this amateur journalism thing. He's got that world that he's participating in, and he um, is starting to write more fiction, and his fiction is becoming more in the vein of what we think of as Lovecraftian Um I think the story that he writes in 1921, The Music of Eric Zahn, is not quite a Cthulhu story, but it is definitely Lovecraftian. Um, It's one of my favorites, actually. Music of Eric Zahn is a fantastic story. It's about, uh, do you want to do it, Brad? No, go for it. No, go for it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, uh, especially because Lovecraft, as far as we know, didn't have any particular interest in music uh, beyond Mm. just like listening to opera and classical, you know, uh, sort of in a dilettante way. But uh, the story is about a musician who's sort of locked up in in an attic room and uh, he plays this wild sort of Stravinsky-ish violin music night after night and nobody knows why or what's going on. On, and the protagonist finally manages to sit for a night with the musician while he plays. And it turns out, of course, that there are these horrifying elder god cosmic forces trying to break into our dimension. And by playing this wild music, this man is able to, to keep the evil forces at bay. And uh, this is a, we, we're starting to see, as, as with the story Dagon and Beyond the Wall of Sleep that we talked about earlier, we're seeing the germs. We're seeing the seeds, the, the, the motifs, the elements of the Cthulhu mythos starting to, mm-hmm. starting to pop up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Dagon and, 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 and Music of Eric Zahn, I think, are two, uh, that, in, the bio, in the biographical work we've done so far, I would say those are two, it's worth reading any of this stuff, but I think those are two highlights thus far in Lovecraft yeah. up to 1921. Um, he's also writing. He's also uh, writing a lot of the stories of what are going to later be known as the dream cycle stories. Mm-hmm. These are stories that are in imitation of Lord Dunsany, who we talked mm-hmm. about earlier. They're stories that are set in Lovecraft's own, uh, by his own account, set in his actual lucid dream world, um, which is mm-hmm. apparently consistent from dream to dream. It has a consistent geography, consistent inhabitants. There are sentient cats there who protect places. <laughs> Lovecraft likes cats a lot. Um, There's N Man, N Word Man. Yeah. And, it's yeah, and, and his army of, and his army of sentient cats the night gaunts the the black the black latex uh, tickle torture monsters are there um, all, uh, yeah and he, he's gonna write a whole series of stories that are set in this dream world which don't receive as much attention as the Cthulhu mythos stories but I really mm. think they're two sides of the same coin and there as mm. we'll get into later there really is a lot of interplay between the two the two cycles of stories mm-hmm. so. um now this so one big thing really draws Lovecraft into this next phase. His mother, his mother dying, um, or being committed first and then dying second, and and then Lovecraft meets a woman. So he is in Boston. Um, he is at this uh, amateur journalism event, and he gives a speech. And I think this is really kind of heartwarming. He gives a speech in response to the question of um, what uh, amateur journalism... Uh, oh, wait, no, sorry. The, the question that he was supposed to be responding to is, what you have done for amateur journalism and what has amateur journalism done for you? And I think this is really sort of touching about Lovecraft's perspective on this. Um, you know, there's more to it than this, but this is just an excerpt. Happily, I can be less reserved in stating what amateurdom has done for me Amateur journalism has provided me with the very world in which I live. 
of a nervous and reserved temperament and cursed with an aspiration, aspiration which far exceeds my endowments, I am a typical misfit in the larger world of endeavor. In 1914, when the kindly hand of amateurdom was first extended to me, I was clo- as close to the state of vegetation as any animal well can be. Perhaps I might have best been compared to the lowly potato. What amateurdom, amateurdom has brought me is a circle of persons among whom I am not altogether an alien, persons who possess scholastic leanings, yet who are not as a body so arrogant with achievement that a straggler is frowned upon. What I have given amateur journal, journalism is regrettably little. What amateur journalism has given me is life itself. Right, so clearly he knows, you know, how important this world has been. It's, been, it's a lifeline, really, for him, this, this world. It allows him to tap into a social milieu that he wouldn't have otherwise. Um, you know, we were kind of talking about the, what, what it means in this age. I'll, you know, he sort of missed out on that college or young person experience that a lot of people might have. And this is, this is his alternative for it. And, you know, he recognized that, I think. Um, he also, that same night that he gives that speech, he meets... Sonia Green, the woman who would become his wife. Um, now, now, lads, if you want to meet a lovely young lady, mm-hmm, put yourself mm-hmm. in a position to do some public speaking. Right. That's, it's, it's never true. a bad idea. It it's really not, is. It hurt. Yeah. You're going to get over a lot of anxiety. You're mm-hmm. going to show a bit of confidence. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it tends to get noticed. Even, mm-hmm. And even a complete... <laughs> Bonkers freak, like H- I'm just gonna go out and say it. Even a complete bizarro, the strangest figure that we've covered, and despicable uh, person. Can, there is a port for every storm. The HP Lovecraft PUA method. Yeah, it's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 yeah, yeah. There's just something about it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, and this is and this is the question, right? So as I'm reading this, and I had kind of known going into it, there's there's allusions to to you know, and I knew this actually before even doing the research that he was married, that there was this marriage, and I thought as I've been reading this book and getting to his bio- biographical material, which I wasn't that familiar with before we decided to do this episode, um, I was starting to think like, you know, who is gonna you know, he's got this withdrawn, weird personality. He's, he's, he's steeply racist. He's not only unemployed, but he's unemployable. Um, he's an incel. He's in, you know, he's a neat, he's a nerd. He's a mama's boy. He's all of these things. He really genuinely is these things, despite the fact that, you know, he's a, a literary genius who hasn't quite shown that yet at this point in his life, who would want to be, you know, who, who, who wants to be with this guy, right? What, what kind of person is this? Um, it turns out that Sonia Green is amazing. <laughs> She's an amazing woman. Um, she can save him. Exactly. 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 I am the rest of this episode. I am hinging yeah. my entire hope on the idea that uh, Ms. Green can come in and uh, and help. She certainly helped. She certainly helped. She, she will try. She will do more yeah. than any human being yep. could be expected to do for yes. any other human being. We yes. can say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's true. Samuel I want to flag. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I want to flag. We are going into our our third hour now of of HBO. Oh yeah, you're right. We're yeah. we're going to be heading into it here shortly. I am going to continue listening, but I'm going to go top off a little bit of water. I also think, gentlemen, if it's some juncture, if you need to stand up for for 90 seconds, the yeah. other 
two can can sort of vamp as we go because it's gonna we are going long we are going hard we are going (laughs) dark i warn you Mm, I just, warned you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Just stood up and he gave a public speech and yeah. he's attracted the eye of a of a nice Jewish girl. A nice Jewish girl. Yeah. All yeah. right. Right. All, All right. right. Let's go. Yeah. So so Samuel Loveman, Lovecraft's good friend, would describe her as one of the most beautiful women I have ever met and the kindest. Okay. Now, the one trick kind of the one thing here is she is seven years older than than lovecraft right which is which is kind of substantial um a and she's more, a divorcee she's a divorcee right with a, with a child she had one child and then one who had passed away i believe mm-hmm. um uh she was a ukrainian she was born in ukraine she was a jew born in ukraine in 1883 she'd moved to the united states when she was nine years old to elmira new york which paradoxically is where Mark Twain was born or Mark, sorry, not born where his body is where you can go see the Mark Twain grave, which I actually did one time. I had a friend take me there and I didn't believe them that Mark Twain's grave was there, but it is. Um, uh, she had been married once before, as we said, um, she was a p- kind of a powerhouse businesswoman, especially considering the time that she was in. She was a hat designer. She would own uh, more than one boutique throughout her career um, to, to varying levels of success. Um, oh, yeah. She, yeah. yeah she, she was, was a girl I mean, boss. Yeah. She was a girl boss. Yeah, especially at this time, you know, 1920s yeah. and she's owning a business. Like, I, yeah. you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, and especially not, it wasn't sort of given to her. She, this wasn't, she wasn't the heir to a business. She was, right. she started it herself. So um, you know, she didn't quite reach the levels of what we might call independently wealthy, but she, you know, most of the time she could take care of herself, which um, yeah. is important. <laughs> um, yeah. They had this charming kind of dating thing, her and HPL, where they would go on, you know, I think Howard, I call Howard, Howard Lovecraft, HP Lovecraft, I think his idea of a good time with another person was to go on an antiquarian walking tour. I think that held more appeal to him than basically any other activity you could do with another person. (laughs) And she adapted. She pursued him Mm -hmm. quite a lot. Um, He was pretty, he was pretty, he was shy. He was pretty reticent. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically would put in the time and the energy. Uh, I, I've never quite understood exactly what it was that she saw in him, but apparently it was something that she really wanted because she put in the time to figure out, like you said, that he yeah. liked antiquarian walks. He loved to go to the cemetery and look at the dates on the gravestones right. and uh, right. try to find the oldest ones and trace the family's mm-hmm. names. And she did it. She went and yeah. wept. She went on graveyard walks with him and that was, those were their dates and right. she was happy to do it. It's amazing, right? Yeah. 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 And so eventually she would, um, I think like their first kiss and his first kiss in life was um, something like she had written something and he read it and gave her like, got very excited about it or, or something. It was a very literary kind of thing. It had something to do with, I think something she had written. He got very excited and she sort of impulsively kissed him and he sort of got all bashful about it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Now they would get married. They did get married in 1924 and he would move to New York. So he was very excited about getting married. I mean, he was like, yeah. this is the founding of a new family, you know, and all yeah, of this. Absolutely. And he, yeah. And he moved, he moved to New York city to live with her. 
Yeah. It, it um, was the, would it be one of the hugest shifts in his entire life, actually. So yeah. he's, this is, he spent his entire life in basically Providence, Rhode Island. He spent mm-hmm. most of his life in two particular houses in Providence, Rhode Island. That's yeah. about, that's well, about and those two And those two houses were three blocks away from each other. <laughs> Right, and now now he's going now he's going to New York, and his yeah. his first reaction to New York is uh, he write he starts writing letters to his friends, um, and you can really see the he exoticizes it. He inter- mm-hmm. he writes about it the way that someone would write about the Orient in the Arabian Nights. He writes a letter mm-hmm. about in which he describes like the first rays of dawn coming in and hitting the harbor and mm-hmm. sailing into Ellis Island and being imagining that he can smell the far off spices from ports around the world. And the, you know, it's, it's like, it's a, you think he's describing like Constantinople in the middle right. ages or something. Right. And he's describing right. sailing, sailing into Ellis Island. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, there was a there was a there was a very yin yang kind of attitude he had about New York City itself, and then about his own life there. And I've got these two great in the DeCamp bio, there's these two great um, letter excerpts that are right next to each other about New York City that are totally that contrast each other beautifully. So the first one kind of goes with what you're saying, we'll get some of the Lovecraft kind of language. This is about New York City. Out of the waters, it rose at twilight, cold, proud, beautiful, an eastern city of wonder whose brothers the mountains are. It was not like any city of earth, for above purple mists rose towers, spires, and pyramids, which one may dr- only dream of in opiate lands beyond the Oxus, right? I don't even know what the Oxus is, but... <laughs> it's a range but, of mountains in Turkmenistan. Is that what it is? Wow. Yep. Okay. Hey, okay. Ben, ben coming in hot. Sorry, river in yeah. Turkmenistan. Ben has probably been there. The one thing we missed in his en- intro is that Ben is one of the most well-traveled people that I ever I've been in I've been in 40 countries, but have not been in Turkmenistan. Okay. Okay. Now here's the flip side. Here's though. So that's his love. That's his 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 love letter to to New York City. Here's the other side, talking about um, visiting the slums of the Lower East Side. These swine have instinctive swarming movements, a bastard mess of stewing mongrel flesh without intellect, repellent to eye, nose, and imagination. Would to heaven a kindly gust of sight. Cynogen could asphyxiate the whole gigantic abortion and the misery and clean out the place. So that's the yeah. other side of New York City for for Lovecraft. Yeah, <laughs> just just to really underline this, that's Lovecraft talking about uh, killing other ethnicities with toxic gas. Oh yes, just to be, yeah. Just to be <laughs> very clear that <laughs> that's what he's saying. Come across, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, so one one thing I do want to mention: th- those two letters are from two different. That the first one is from when he's first arriving in yep. New York. Yes. The second yes. one is. After he and Sonia have been there for, I think, four years, or Sonia eventually moves away, and yeah. Lovecraft has some disastrous experiences, one of which is that he has to try and... Sonia loses her job, and uh, mm-hmm. she she's jobless for a little while. Lovecraft says, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to be the breadwinner and uh, find a job. And Lovecraft embarks on what may well be the worst job search in human history. Like if you, if you were like, if you gave me like a, like a Nathan for you episode and said like, do the worst job search you possibly can. I couldn't do a job search as bad as HP Lovecraft. Oh, it's, hola- it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's, he, yeah. He goes to, he goes to employers. He tells employers that they're not his first choice. 
Um, mm-hmm. he, he, he applies for positions that he's wildly underqualified for. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he shows up to interviews and speaks in his antiquarian, uh, you know, English <laughs> pro, uh, prose language. But you can only imagine how this goes over in Manhattan in the 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> Lovecraft showing up in his starched collars and his uncle's yeah. like 19th century suits talking about right. being a country gentleman. Like, yeah. And he has, and he has no job experience either. He's like yeah, a zero. something year old he's, man with no job experience. So zero. He's never even, never, never worked behind a counter in his life. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Now I'm going to give you a quick, this is from the, this is from the, you guys, you guys know how to pronounce this. I always make it sound terrible. Hoybeck? Wellbeck. Wellbeck. Okay. All right. I'm not even going to try. Okay. This is, this is, but this is from that book, but it's a Lovecraft excerpt, uh, an excerpt from a Lovecraft letter that he apparently wrote to an employer. This would be like a cover letter. The notion that not even a man of cultivation and good intelligence can possibly acquire rapid effectiveness in a field ever so slightly outside his own routine would seem to be a naive one. Yet recent events have shown me most emphatically what a widespread superstition it is. Since commencing two months ago, a quest for work which, for which I am naturally and scholastically well-fitted, I have answered nearly a hundred advertisements without gaining so much as one chance for satisfactory hearing. And all, apparently, because I cannot point to previous employment in the precise industrial subdivision represented by the various firms. Faring thus with the usual channels, I am at last experimentally taking the aggressive. So that was in a letter, that was a cover, part of a cover letter that Lovecraft wrote to one of his prospective employers. Um, you can just see they were, they were like, who is this weirdo? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, this no. guy is going to be a problem. <laughs> right. He is yeah. not going to show up on time. If right. he does show up on time, we're going to wish he hadn't. <laughs> it's going to be an issue. Right, right, right. So, so he's he sort of works his way down the ladder to the point where he's applying for like stockroom positions. He can't even find that. He, yeah. he can't get anything. He, can't, he, really he, can't. he ultimately, he can't find it. Nobody will hire him. Um, yeah. And he begins to sell his belongings. And this right. is the point where Sonia is like red flag. And yeah. uh, she decides to go out. And I, I do think before she went to we Cleveland, before, right? After a couple of years yeah, in New York she, city with them, she went to Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. She, she, she finds another job in Cleveland. Lovecraft doesn't want to accompany her there because, and who can blame him? It's Cleveland. Sorry, not sorry, Cleveland. But uh, yeah, <laughs> Lovecraft doesn't want to go there. And guys, uh, you can't do this. This is a podcast. <laughs> We've got Rhode Island now. We've got Cleveland. <laughs> I, I am not. I dis- disavow. I disavow the cat name. I dis- disavow <laughs> so much of this episode. Um, one thing that I do think is worth touching on is that he and Sonia actually do have they make a go of it love-wise, uh, love-life-wise mm-hmm. in this period. Um, the only thing that she, contrary to the rumors that he's asexual, she describes him as satisfactory in bed, which is, you know. That's high not, praise. Not, not five stars, but, you know. apparently it's, they, it's, it's frankly better than I would have expected from Lovecraft, right. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And they, I want to read a, a love letter that he wrote to her. This is a, oh, she, awesome. after, after their divorce, she would burn most of the uh, uh, correspondence that the two of them had. But this is a love letter that uh, was somehow preserved. And this is what he wrote to her in the heat of passion. Dear Mrs. Green, the reciprocal love of a man and a woman is an experience of the imagination, which consists of attributing to its subject a certain particular relation with the aesthetico-emotional life of that which feels it, and depends on particular conditions which must be fulfilled by that object. 
With long years of mutual enduring, love slowly comes adaptation and a perfect relationship. Memories, dreams, delicate stimuli, aesthetics, and habitual impressions of beauty of dreams become permanent modifications thanks to the influence of each upon the other. There is one considerable difference between the sentiments of youth and those of maturity. Around 40 or maybe 50 years old, a complete change takes place. Love exceeds to a profound calm and serenity founded on a tender association before which the erotic infatuation of youth has a certain mediocre and humiliating aspect. Youth brings with it erogenous and imaginary stimuli based on the tactile phenomena of slender bodies in virginal attitudes and on the visual imagery of classical aesthetic contours symbolizing a sort of freshness and springtime immaturity, which is very beautiful, but which has nothing to do with conjugal love. Huh. That is Lovecraft in the heat of passion writing. I mean, I, I was swooning. Ooh. I was swooning when you read that. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like he's dissecting a frog or some sort of an animal. <laughs> It's really, it, this is a far cry from, from Joyce's. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're opposite ends yeah. of the spectrum. That's mm. for sure. Yeah, keyword is sure. spectrum here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of the many, I've heard, I've heard spectrum, I've heard uh, schizophrenic, I've heard psychopaths, sociopath, yeah. I've heard them all. Who knows? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's hard yeah, to no, think. I, yeah. Once again, I am, you just threw me a curveball. Yeah. That's a new uh, style of prose from him. Right. Yeah. I, it, I haven't even. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, That's a yeah. love letter. Okay. All right. Yep. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. All so, right. so we'll, uh, yeah. So, so, so the, the marriage with Sony ultimately doesn't work. Right. Obviously, I think um, yeah. they would eventually agree to, um, he would move back. I, I think I had in my notes, and I could be wrong, but I think he moves back to um, Providence after a little yeah. over two years. Now, he does have a lot of. He, this is a very social time period for him in New York City because there's a lot more people around in Providence than there were in Providence, right? This Sonia is, continues to pay his rent, by the way. Sonia, does, continue, Sonia moves, moves to Cleveland. Cleveland. She's hustling. She, yeah. She's paying for herself and her kid, and she's footing the bill for Lovecraft's rent in New right, York. Right, right, yeah. right. You hear these stories of these guys. I'll never understand how that happens. Mm hmm. I just, yeah. it's, it would be so anathema to me. Yeah. Maybe I'm just silly. Maybe I should have tried it at some, at some point. <laughs> I just can't imagine. But again, that, that puts him in another, it just is helping. You're shading in my understanding of who this is. Right, Mommy is right. still looking after him. Oh, well, this yeah. is the thing. When he lived in New York City, he would, um, he would still have his aunts uh, send him dispersals from like the estate or whatever, or the trust or however that worked, right? They would like send him a check every month, like an allowance. And when he got checks for writing from Weird Tales and from other sources, excuse me, he would mail the checks up to Providence for his aunts to take care of. And if say when he was living in New York, say his shoes needed to be cobbled or he needed a pair of pants, uh, pants mended, he would mail those to Providence, have his aunts take care of it and they would mail it back. Right. This is, and this is, you know, this is a, like a 38 year old man at this point uh -huh. or, 30, okay. you know, or mid 30 year old man, sure. uh, not 38, but 35. I, I want to tell you what, I, I kind of like him. <laughs> I kind of like. I like it. He's he's pursuing his his craft, his art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's awful. He's horrible. Yeah, right. But I, right. I kind of there's a certain uh, kind of a weird, almost like a localism to him. Even though he's yes. living in New York, he's still. Oh no, he to, loved Providence. He would, would he go back? He, he must oh, yeah, have gone he, back frequently. He went back. Yeah. Right. No. So mm. he went after. Uh, he may. He probably traveled when he lived in New York City. So probably traveled up 
but he definitely moved back to Providence after this couple of years in New York. Um, mm. He loved Providence. He loved the old buildings. He loved like the colonialism, like Victorianism, Victorian like architecture for a long time was too recent for him. That was, that was <laughs> like, and it's, right. oh, it's he, he would actually, he would actually at one point say, I am Providence. Yes, I think, yes. I believe that's actually on his tombstone. I think it is too. Yeah, he loved it. He would he would take friends that would come visit him. He would take them on tours and like, where else but in Providence can you find? And he would just like show them like a bank, you know? I, or whatever. I kind of, yeah, I know a few people. I've met a few people that are like that. Uh, they just and, love the place they're from, you know? And they know every, every street and, and every family name yeah. and maybe not yeah. every, but they know a yeah. lot. Yeah, I kind of admire that. That's something yeah, that I feel like we've lost a little bit. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I like there. this. There's, I is that really on his tombstone? I, I am it Providence. It is. Wow. Yep. Yeah. I've been. I've been there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So he goes. He definitely goes back to Providence. Now, the one thing that happens in New York City is the racism. I think really ramps up. Yeah. Um. In 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 he would have some later experiences that are going to temper this, which we'll talk about. But but I think there's a couple of things going on here. His his own inability to get a job or find a job or take care of himself. I think despite the fact that he leaned on it, I think there's some indication that it was a little bit embarrassing. Um, and, and, and he did try to get a job. He just was terrible at it. Um, and then you've got these, from his perspective, these hordes of, you know, people that have such mixed whatever that he can't even identify them. They're coming in, they're having the American dream kind of thing happen, right? And, and, and so I think this all turned his racism up. And also he was out of his element. He felt alienated and all these things. I think this really cranked up the knob. On, I, I think it shifts, it shifts the tone of the racism. It goes from your garden variety, New England, you know, I've never met a black person, right. you know, casual racism to he, he begins to describe like um, seeing uh, the, the smells of like the foreign cooking and the smells of the, the uh, quote unquote Negro bodies and things like this on the streets, you know, smell yeah. the, the smells and the sounds of them like hooting like apes on the subway. He begins to use this kind of imagery. Just it's like a visceral physical revulsion yeah. at other yeah. ethnicities that begins me, to come let, out of him. Yeah, let me give you because this is actually I don't even want to say this, but this is like pure Lovecraftian prose style, but in this milieu of racial just hatred, okay? This is from a letter that he wrote to his friend, uh, Frank Belknap Long. The organic things, Italo-Semitico-Mongoloid, inhabiting that awful cesspool could not by any stretch of the imagination be called human. They were monstrous and nebulous adumbrations of the pathancropoid and amoebal, vaguely molded from, from, from some stinking viscous slime of Earth's corruption and slithering and oozing in and on the filthy streets or in and out of windows and doorways in a fashion suggestive of nothing but infesting worms or deep-sea unnameabilities. So, yeah, that's... We are well beyond the level of hanging out with the boys and you know cracking jokes here this isn't yeah this, yeah, this is isn't this isn't cracking the occasional this isn't sort of fun. shocker joke or whatever yeah, right yeah, right or even you among know, you know you have your italian friend and you got your italian jokes yeah there, right right this right, is, right this is some next yeah this level. isn't not this that isn't, you would have an italian friend but i mean i'm saying if you did of course i'm right. joking <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you you get my point. It's like yeah, we're we're we're, no, this we're is, well this is, beyond the level of of japery. Right, this is right. real. This is like this is 
existential. This is yeah. this is yeah. disgusting. Yeah, they're not it, human, and I'm going to say they're not human. That's right. That's, yeah, go right. on. And, and the thing is, when you start to think about what his fiction then becomes, because we haven't written, he hasn't written the Call of Cthulhu yet. Cthulhu yet. He hasn't written uh, some of these, and you think about that that he's writing about when he's living in New York City, and then you think about the work that's that's to come. You can't. To my mind, you can't totally unwind those two things from each other. I don't think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, now, and yet, weirdly, this is, despite all of this revulsion at these other uh, ethnic groups, this is the, still the same guy who remains and will remain to the end of his life fascinated with the Orient, the East, right. you know, the, right. the, the, right. the sunlight on the minarets and the deserts of Arabia right. and all this. Right. It's, right. So, it's, 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 again, it's the puzzle pieces that just don't seem to come from yeah. the same puzzle. Well, I well, can understand. Yeah, go, go on. Well, well I, I, I say, every time he for... encounters a sorry, mm-hmm. every time he encounters, he actually encounters people on a personal basis that are from some. You know, the first Jewish woman he meets, he marries. The yeah. <laughs> he yeah. meets some French Canadians later in a trip to Canada, and it's like these people are amazing. He meets some Cubans in Florida later. He's like, I have to go to Cuba. Like he's not, as soon as he actually encounters any of these people in, in a way that's not just being overwhelmed by it. Like, you know, any, anybody, you can imagine if you're from Providence and you show up in New York city and you go to the most hectic, crazy, slummy place in well, the city, and it smells like to be a little urine. And at this point they're yeah. probably still dumping their, their waste in the streets more than they still do. Right. I, and I'm not going to run cover for HB Lovecraft's no, no, no. awfulness, but I, if I do try to uh, be somewhat sympathetic, like it's probably somebody who's way too sensitive, way too high on his own horse, never got a punch in the face like he probably should have, was coddled, and goes to a city where they're they're not giving you room in New York City. And I, I guarantee they weren't then, and they still don't. You got to fight for every inch, and you got to fight for your spot on the subway, and they're not going to make it comfortable for a little dandy boy like him. Right. And this probably comes out as a kind of narcissistic rage, yes. uh, which he turns on the other. Yeah. So in a way, it's, it's a kind of, of it. pathetic. It's a, it's right. a little pitiable. But at the right. same time, like, I, it, not... Maybe, I mean, it's maybe marginally different from somebody who's from some small Midwestern town and who comes back and just says, I could never live in New York City. But and right. yet he somehow lives there for a number of years. So, yeah, right. interesting. Right. Strange right. guy. Like you say, though, yeah, it's, it's hard to not to wonder, like, what might have happened if he did get a blue collar job, you know, hauling barrels in a warehouse somewhere and had to work with Cubans or, you know, it's, right. it's it, Whatever. If, he, if he hadn't had that luxury of having this woman who's willing to write the checks for the rent and, you know, he can he sit up in his ivory tower writing yeah. racial, you know, white supremacist rhetoric all day. If he actually had to get down there and, <laughs> and, and work with these people, you know, he might have yeah. formed a very different opinion. So I think he probably would have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to give one kind of final note on the Sonia marriage, that, which does end. Um, this is later, she outlived him, and, and this, is, uh, this is sort of the eulogy, not that she gave at his wedding, but just uh, I think in a letter that she wrote. Um, Sonia said, I believe he loved me as much as it was possible for a temperament like his to love. He'd never mention the word love. He would say, my dear, you don't know how much I appreciate you. I tried to understand him and was grateful for any crumbs from his lips that fell my way. I saw in Howard a Socratic wisdom and genius. I had hoped in time to humanize him further, to lift him out of his abysmal depths of loneliness and psychic complexes by the true wedded life. Sorry, the true wedded love. I'm afraid my optimism and excessive self-assurance misled us both. And he was such a good public speaker. 
He was. I was. I was sure that yeah. I could save yeah. him. She was having the the I could save him impulse. Yeah. Yeah. That can, yeah. boy, if you want to get wrecked, yeah, yeah. that that is a thing to get wrecked on, and that yeah. cuts and, in all directions. Mm-hmm. And for for a time, it looked like she might actually be succeeding. Um, his friends who came to visit him in New York were absolutely shocked uh, because they they came to visit him. You know, had people who had seen him in Providence shuffling around the house in his dressing gown, pretending to be old Uncle Theobald. They came and saw him in New York, and he's giving he's giving dinner parties. He and Sonia right. are going out to the theater. Like he's, right. he's there, there's one actually. If you Google image search for H.P. Lovecraft photos, there's one picture of him where he's actually smiling. And it's was taken of him when he was in New York. It's uh, yeah. it's it's like and it's and it stands out from all the others H.P. Lovecraft author photos. You're like it's it's downright weird. It's like Lovecraft yeah. smiling into the camera, and you're yeah. like, this is a guy who's actually having fun. Yeah, he was so, having a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and he had he, he did he he did have moments I think that were fun in New York. And he definitely made friends. He made friends that he would visit throughout the rest of his life, even though you know even after he moved back to Providence. Um, one thing that does come out too in uh, this period, the New York period, and, the, and then more of it uh, after his move back to Providence, is he gets his first piece published in Weird Tales. Um, they publish, I think the first story they publish is The Hound, if I'm not mistaken. I and, just, I have always loved the name of that magazine. Oh, it's Weird great. Weird Tales. <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, a great, I just, ooh. You can just, I want to, <laughs> I want to go get my penny and run down to the corner store for yeah. the newest copy of Weird right. Tales. Yes. And we, you really have to set the cultural context for this too, because this is, you know, this is mid 1920s. There really is no such thing as modern science fiction fiction, modern fantasy, modern horror. I mean, there's some horror stuff floating around, you know, Mary Shelley and, uh, and mm-hmm. Bram Stoker's Dracula, this kind of stuff. But Weird Tales is the flagship magazine of the genre of weird fiction which is really something that's qualitatively different from all those other genres in that it may have monsters, it may have fantasy elements, it may take place on other worlds, but rather than trying to provoke horror or revulsion, it, the, weird, the Weird Tales' primary purpose is to awaken emotions of awe and wonder. And this is uh, the, the sort of manifesto or MO for the weird fiction genre really right down. It's still an active genre and an active community that I participate in as a writer to this day. And it's the genre that Lovecraft really is going to come to define by, by writing these stories that are, it's they're, they feel sort of like sci-fi sometimes. Sometimes they feel like fantasy. Sometimes they feel like horror. I think a lot of people today would consider him a horror author, but he's none of these. He's a weird fiction author. And that's, that's reflected in the name of the magazine, Weird Tales, that's going to mm-hmm. bring him a, a lot of reputability during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the first story comes out in like 1924, uh, The Hound, and then through, um, he would appear in for two or three years, he would appear in almost every episode, uh, every issue of weird tales. He would have a story in it and with, you know, gradually making a little bit more money each time, gradually getting a little bit more acclaim each time. Right. Um, until eventually you see uh, call of Cthulhu in there and in, in some of his bigger works. Um, and I want to dwell on that more and, and, and spend more time because now we're getting into 1924, 1926 and on, we're getting into the sort of the great texts period of Lovecraft. One thing I want to hit on before that though, is um, talking about his, his uh, ghost writing and editing. The, one of the most interesting things is he's, he ghost wrote uh, at least one story, if not more um, for Harry Houdini of all people. Yep. 
which is, I think is fascinating. Just imagining the two. I don't even know if the two of them met in person. I think they actually did at least once. Um, but he wrote a Harry Houdini. It was like a Harry Houdini caper story um, that Harry Houdini had kind of come up with about getting trapped, uh, captured by some, 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 some Arabs at the, 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 at the Sphinx, I believe, and lowered into like a, a, a chamber of unnameable horrors. Was it like Lovecraft a commission? It. it was a commission. Yeah, no, it, it would go under the byline of Harry Houdini, but Lovecraft wrote it. Oh, it was, it was Ghost wrote it. Ghost wrote it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it would have been... Houdini's, okay. Houdini's concept for the story was I was imprisoned underneath uh, the, the Sphinx and I had to escape. And then Lovecraft mm. takes this and he turns it into a Lovecraft story. And right. there's, you know, un, unnameable <laughs> squelching things with hippopotamus heads in the darkness. And, you know, it goes on from there. I love it. So. I love it. I love it. Now, so that was probably the most noteworthy of his ghostwriting clients. He would have others who are not so well known and he would have what others Houdini, where he would... What did Houdini say? I'm like, hey, H- I don't even know he would do it. Hey, HP, give me some of that weird fiction. Right. <laughs> give me some, of, some of those weird tales. I, I, I wish I could do that kind of mid-Atlantic yeah, period right, right, accent. Right. Yeah, that's they so funny. Probably both, well, I think Houdini was like actually like a Hungarian or something. Oh, right. Of course, it'd be, a, it'd be a different accent. So. Yeah. That, that, that's a different show. I'm not going to start doing accents. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, I just love to imagine that meeting and boy. Right. We are talking. Right. No, yeah. It's, very much a time period and he would mm. this is the thing is you get a, there were other people that, that lovecraft knew lovecraft was um acquaintances with one of charlie chaplin's half brothers so there's just like the strange you know these people that they he runs into and and then of course um uh, eventually robert e howard he would become friends with mostly via correspondence um and then and some of these other these other writers clark actually excuse me, Clark Ashton Smith um, and that sort of thing. It's just interesting the kind of the circle that he did end up running in because of this and the people that he would come to know. And it, it, this is around the, this is around the period. He hasn't quite started to get into the, the real Cthulhu mythos core mm-hmm. stories yet. He's, he's building up to it, but yeah. this is around the period that he's starting to attract influence and other writer, younger mm-hmm. writers are starting to write into him, uh, you know, expressing interest in the stuff that he's written saying, can I borrow such and such element for my own? And Lovecraft is, extremely solicitous he's very he's like absolutely you want to you want to you know write about something uh, in reference to this theme that i used in my story absolutely go for it and so he's even though he doesn't have human protagonists or a, a cohesive storyline in his in his fiction he's creating a world that other writers want to come and play it and mm-hmm. and this is this is his influence is kind of starting to spread little little by little out yeah. into the weird fiction community yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one thing we should hit on too, um, 1926 or so, he writes um, for a, he writes a lengthy article, spends like eight months on it for his friend W. Paul Cook's amateur journal, The Recluse. What, what is it called? Supernatural. Yeah. Supernatural uh, horror and literature. I mean, yeah. it's really, it's really a book almost. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it traces the entire history of uh, of course, it really should be called supernatural horror in European literature because that's the mm. only kind of literature Lovecraft cares about. But it's, right. it's traces he it traces the origins of horrific supernatural themes going back to the ancient uh, you know Celtic and uh, Anglo-Saxon Germanic myths uh, and uh, through Gre- the Greco-Roman period, going through Gothic romance of uh, uh, the Italian uh, ghost stories and uh, Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and all this kind of stuff. It talks about uh, 
Machen, Arthur Machen, and Blackwood and Dunsany, who we mentioned earlier in the in this in this episode. And then, then oddly enough, it kind of stops. It doesn't talk about any of Lovecraft's own contemporaries. Uh, it ends mm. with a chapter called The Modern Masters, which is mostly mm. about Machen and Blackwood and Dunsany, who mm. were working in like the 1910s. And it doesn't talk about any of the writers who Lovecraft personally knew or was working with as his own contemporaries. It just kind of stops, mm. which is which is kind of weird. Like it, it would be like making a, a documentary about uh, you know, horror fiction now and stopping at the year 2000. And you just like, don't write about anybody who's doing right now. So right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. He, he, he's just like summarizing everything that's come before. Yeah. But what, what I find interesting about that, and I, I didn't read that entire essay. I read a fair amount of it. it it's, it's well, it's, it's, well researched like he he yeah. did the work for sure and then it also made me realize it was like man at that time had anybody written anything that in depth on that subject matter i mean th- this yeah. isn't something that was getting studied at the ivy league institutions right so, so, right. so this work had to be happening outside of the academy and lovecraft was actually doing it right so yeah. Yeah, and he didn't get he didn't get paid for it. This was an eight month gentlemanly investigation into you know it was very yeah. uh, it's it's interesting and and it poises him as an expert in the field at that time for sure. Not only not only you know from a scholarly standpoint, but from a, a practitioner standpoint. It really gives you a lot of insight into his influences too, and where his what his literary world looks like at this period. You know, yeah. it's a, it's kind of common, I think, for a lot of people who come to Lovecraft's work for the first time to see Lovecraft as this person who just sort of pops out of the void with all these tentacles and alien, odor, and you're like, where does this come from? This has nothing to do with anything. If you read read supernatural horror and literature, Lovecraft will tell you exactly where mm. all of this stuff comes from. It's all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, as we're getting, we're going, obviously we're going a little long and there's some things we're going to kind of skip maybe some things, but there's, sure. cause there's a couple points that I want to hit. One thing, Ben, is can you give me your, what are the big highlights? Cause once 1926 happens, Lovecraft hits this, this pretty impressive run. He never writes a novel, but who cares? Because he writes all these, these very in, long short stories and novellas. What are the handful of the must reads in that yep. period 1926 and on and you know give us kind of the the gist of them and, and what yep. people should read absolutely absolutely yeah so, so just uh, he does actually co-write a novel called the lurker at the threshold right. um, which is some it's it's not great but it's you know it's there um mm-hmm. but yeah the core the core text really the first one of these is the dunwich horror and mm-hmm. i am going to hold on pull up my chronological list to make sure ah, i get yes. these all in yeah. Make sure I get these all in correct order. Because he does have a pretty impressive run, a pretty productive run. <clears throat> yeah, for... this is after after he gets back to Providence, after he writes supernatural horror and literature, and this is when he this is when he really starts doing it. So the first one is yeah, the Dunwich Horror, and that is oh man, it's <laughs> it's set in a town, fictional town called Dunwich in New England, and it's basically the story of this old sorcerer who collects a a set of forbidden texts and it's revealed later in the story has basically sired a son or has helped a son be born with the cooperation of his wife 
and an entity from beyond the stars out, from out of, called Yog Sothoth uh, from out of from out of space. And there's there have been actually two children born out of this uh, union. One of which is a, a boy called Wilbur, who is human from the waist up and very much not human from the waist down. And then another child who is never actually seen because it's invisible until the climax of the story when some uh, some professors at the university manage to find some magic powder that they can blow on the other this other entity and then it's revealed what it actually is and it's this giant it's this giant creature with uh, you know it's all made of like centipedes and snakes and it has a half of a man's face on top and it's just it's a, it looks like that moment in the story I still remember reading it I remember going back as, as a teenager the first time I read that story going back and reading and rereading and rereading that passage like I couldn't like picture in my head what he's describing mm. and that had never happened to me in, in literature mm. before it's mm-hmm. so unlike anything mm. um, and but one thing that Welbeck points out, which I think is incredible, is that this is actually a messiah story told in reverse. So you have mm. the, the magical child born in the winter to a mother of, he's born of divine parentage. He uh, it becomes well-read in the sacred texts early in life and debates with the other uh, philosophers at the university who say he's a heretic. He's pursued um, uh, by the by, the traditional scholars um, mocked. He performs miracles. Uh, he reveals mysteries from beyond space and time. And then the climax of the story, the Dunwich Horror, is the other brother being pursued up to the top of the hill, revealed to be this horrific alien creature. And at the top of the hill, as this alien thing is dying, uh, as the as the uh, the the doctors cast curses on it and throw these potions at it and it's dying and it looks up to heaven, up to the stars and it screams, Father Yogg-Sothoth, why have you forsaken me? And, oh then, and it, as, it's, as it's dying. <laughs> so it is, it, is, it is the Jesus story inverted. Wow. What if the Messiah came and the Messiah came from, from, from it was, it was some, someone else's Messiah. It was, ah. it was, it was the mm. elder God's Messiah. Mm. Um, and they, uh, and this is introduces one of the themes that's going to recur in a lot of Lovecraft stories, which is that the heroes never really win. If they make it out with their lives, they're lucky. If they make it out with their lives and their sanity, they're extraordinarily lucky. That is the best mm. they can ever hope for. Nothing is mm. you're never nothing's ever defeated. Um, right, nothing, right. You, nothing, know, you never get the girl. You never get the prize. Yeah, you never, 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 yeah. never save the day. That's the yeah. thing that I always remember about the tabletop HP uh, Lovecraft Cthulhu games is that you're always rolling sanity checks. Yes. Uh, your character's going to go <laughs> mad at some point and, that, and you get to LARP that. So not yeah. unlike being a podcaster. Yeah, that's right. Yep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going to backtrack here because I actually did miss a couple that I want to hit. The first really story of the, of the mythos is The Call of Cthulhu. That yeah. one he writes in 1926. Um, that one opens... Th- that one opens with a dream. Uh, and this actually comes out of, Lovecraft had what was called a commonplace book, which was a notebook where he wrote down his, his story ideas, uh, sort of his, his trapper keeper. And he would, uh, he, he had this story idea that was, he wanted to write a story about a, an artist who sees an image of an idol in a dream, uh, some, some pre-human idol of some alien race, and then sculpts the idol out of clay, and then takes the idol and shows it to an art professor or an archaeologist, and the art professor or the archaeologist is shocked and horrified because it looks exactly, it's, a, it's an exact duplicate of some 10,000-year-old idol that was excavated in, in some uh, excavation from a primeval human sacrifice cult. That was the image that started the story. 
for Lovecraft. So it's, again, we come back to the theme of, but this all started from dreams. The first time we encounter Cthulhu, the idea of Cthulhu is in a dream and dreams are extraordinarily important to Lovecraft and they're gonna to continue to be important throughout the rest of this work. So the call of Cthulhu, then it's told from the perspective of a guy who's digging through his uncle's letters and uh, finds these references to, this, to these various people who have encountered the Cthulhu cult in various ways. The first one being this artist, uh, as I just described, who showed the statue to the archeologist and the archeologist was terrified. The archeologist takes the statue then, it's documented in more of the letters, to a meeting of the archeological society. And, all the, and some of the archeologists start saying, Oh, wait, I've seen something like that too, uh, but in some totally other context. Uh, there was this degenerate tribe of uh, Inuit uh, Eskimo people some, somewhere way up in the Great White North, and they practice human sacrifice, and they have an idol like this. And this is another theme that we're going to continue to see throughout Lovecraft's core mythos stories, is some weird thing, op some weird object appears and nobody mm -hmm. know, can explain it or, or mm -hmm. what its context is. And then it's like somebody else, is, somebody else says, oh wait, I've seen that thing, but it's from another culture 10,000 years older. And somebody right. else, oh, I've seen that thing, but we dug it up on a moon of Jupiter. And right, you know, it, it, right, it's, right. It's, that's it, how you it, build it. That's how, that's yeah. real, that's world building, right? That's like, right. that's how you, because then you, all of a sudden the gap between those two things is totally, totally filled. Finding it in, in the Inuit culture and finding it in, in Louisiana and suddenly your mind just fills in those blanks with unspeakable right. horrors. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, it, and yeah. another person at that meeting is a, is a, is a policeman who's just broken up a, a human sacrifice cult in Louisiana mm -hmm. that was yeah. in a deep in the swamp where they were also worshiping the same idol. And then the final uh, section of the story is that uh, there is a, sea, a Norwegian sea captain who recounts a story that he actually sailed to. Because up to this point in the story, you, you're basically thinking Cthulhu is uh, is a, a primitive god. It's it's mm -hmm. something that uh, people worshipped. But then this uh, Norwegian sea captain reveals the ultimate horror of the story is that is that Cthulhu actually is a real physical being. It, Cthulhu right. actually literally lives on Earth now. And it's mm. asleep, but you can, if you sail to his island, he can, you can wake him up. He looks mm. like a dragon with an octopus for a head. Everybody knows what Cthulhu looks like. And yeah. uh, Lovecraft will actually take some flack for this. Um, it, the fact that this, when the monster is revealed, it actually doesn't really seem all that creative. It's like you just took a dragon and put an octopus on its head. Uh, and, and he will, <laughs> Lovecraft will never repeat this mistake again. Every other <laughs> thing that he's going to introduce you to from this point on is going to be weirder Something. every story is going to be weirder than the one before every monster yeah. is going to be weirder than the one before yeah so yeah that's that's the call of cthulhu um another one uh the color out of space that comes out in 1927 this mm -hmm. is widely considered one of his best if not his best it's about a meteor that crashes into a well on a farm and begins to turn everything on the farm into some kind of alien organism it's uh if you've mm -hmm. seen the movie annihilation it's basically annihilation set yeah. in the 1920s it's yeah. it's you know the the deeper end of this place the, the people go into the farm and the deeper in you go the weirder things get the more things are hybridizing with each other and then ultimately you get to the well itself and uh and there's really no explanation it's uh, no. It, again it's, if you if you survive you're lucky what was it we don't know what it was a color that came out of space we have we mm -hmm. have no idea mm -hmm. um so that's the color out of space. Then 1928, the Dunwich Horror, which I talked about uh, before. Mm -hmm. Then the Whisperer in Darkness, which is, this is a story about a 
a scientist who's corresponding with a friend of his who claims that he has been in, in contact with aliens. And the aliens are sort of crab-like insectoid beings who fly on membranous wings across the cosmos. And the nature of the nature of this guy's contact with the aliens, it's not like he's been, you know, taken up into a spaceship and probed or something. What's this is a very Lovecraftian touch. What the aliens have been doing, they've been coming to his house in the darkness and whispering facts about the cosmos and the true nature of reality that are so terrifying they're driving this man insane. Yeah. That's that's what's nice. been happening. That's why nice. it's called the whisper that's why it's called the whisperer in darkness. Yeah. And then <laughs> <laughs> the, the protagonist or the narrator finally manages to uh, get a train. He goes to visit the this uh, scientist who's been terrified by all these things. And then the, the name of the story, The Whisperer in Darkness, takes on a second meaning because when he goes to meet the guy, the the room is all dark. Uh, in the the room where the the room where this uh, this person that he's gone to visit is sitting is all dark. And all that will, the only thing that he can do is sit in a chair and listen to this guy whisper to him out of the shadows again. So mm. it's, it's, it's this very, very creepy, this very creepy image of like, you're just sitting, you've gone to visit this person, you know, you're supposed to be saving him from some kind of alien horror. And when you get there, he's just like sitting in the shadows, draped in, you know, robes in the, in the <laughs> darkness, whispering to you of these cosmic mysteries and, uh, and, uh, issues an invitation to you to come and to come and visit the the realms beyond the stars that, so that again, was we have to, that was what it was like the last time kevin visited me yeah it was sure. just sort of Without in the darkness doubt. yeah 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 <laughs> and and uh, when we finally she, do our art of darkness meetup it is going to be lovecraft themed yeah, I, I surely <laughs> hope so. Mm, well, I think we'll let ben MC. yeah go yeah, on then go. you are it's crushing a, it, this yes mm -hmm. yes you know yeah, what this is like this is but like I, the great montage in the in the sort of the midpoint of Scarface, where suddenly he goes from being the the schlubby assassin to Tony Montana. Yes, I can yeah. feel this is happening for Lovecraft. Yeah, this is Lovecraft is pushing it to the limit right yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the whisperer in darkness continues uh, to. Uh, also, I think it's worth mentioning here. That this has got to be some some sort of a callback to when Lovecraft's friends would come and visit him during a breakdown. Right? He can't right. get out of bed. He's sitting. He's sitting Good in point. his bathrobe. He won't. He won't speak above a whisper. And the yeah. only thing that he'll talk about is horrific mysteries from beyond the stars <laughs> and his dream world. <laughs> so it's yes, uh, yes. and. Uh, and so that, yeah, that's, that's the whisperer in darkness. There's a, there's a final revelation at the end of the story, which I won't spoil. It's a, it's, it's, it's great. It's a banger of a weird tale. Absolutely cool. worth reading. Cool. Um, the next one after that, 1931 at the mountains of madness. This is a proper novella. This is like mm -hmm. 40, 50,000 words. Mm -hmm. This is a story about an expedition who go into Antarctica, into the center of Antarctica and Lovecraft maps this out with longitude and latitude. That's how precise he is. He, he lists the supplies that are in each plane and uh, dog cart. He maps out the entire journey, latitude and longitude with landmarks so you could actually trace it on a map. They go into the center of Antarctica, past this huge mountain range that's taller than the Himalayas, and they find there a city. And this city is dated to be 500 million years old, which to put this in context for you, that's five times older than the Jurassic period. This is back to the yeah. Cambrian explosion. This mm. is invertebrate, invertebrate period. A city, a, mm -hmm. a, a Cyclopean city in Antarctica dating from the time when the most advanced life on Earth was, was invertebrates. 
Mm-hmm. And they go in. Of course, they have to go mm-hmm. in. They go mm-hmm. into the city and they find their engravings, bas-reliefs, documenting the entire history of the civilization that lived there. They were a different kind of race. They were sort of half fungoids with heads that looked like starfish. They had tentacles that they crawled on uh, coming out of the base. And they had this race or species of beings called shoggoths, which were basically like giant amoebas, which served them. And they, and it turns out, uh, it's revealed as they continue to investigate the ruins and go deeper and deeper, that this alien race actually engineered all life on Earth. And the reason that they engineered all life on Earth was for food. And this includes mm-hmm. mankind. I'm going to do a and, little heavy metal guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that vibe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can imagine and, this, these, these, if the film was done, these are Geiger is doing the release. Oh, right? yeah. This yeah. is, yeah. is yeah. Alien. This is mm-hmm. Alien 1. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Guillermo del Toro, who uh, directed uh, both the Hellboy movies, among other things, actually has written a spec script for At the Mountains of Madness. Oh, really? I've read it. I've read it. It's honestly not great. It's more like, um, it's it's not really Lovecraftian so much as like a remake of John Carpenter's The Thing. It's kind of yeah, like well, thing. the Well, the yeah, thing with At the Mountains of Madness I love is, John Carpenter. Yeah, me too. The thing with At the Mountains of Madness is uh, the ideas are brilliant, but like a lot of Lovecraft things, I I don't know how well it translates to film because the plot doesn't contain the plot tropes that right. a film does, right? It doesn't have, it's just, we're going to Antarctica. We found something crazy. We went in there and that's kind of, that's kind of it. Like, and we, yeah, we, no we went in, we went in and there was something, there was something still alive. Still and, alive and, and this isn't dismissal. I, I mean, I think, I think that, that one in particular I read just recently, it's brilliant, but like, to try and translate that into film, you're sort of like, well, what are the stakes? Why does the audience care about the characters? It's sort of not, well, a lot Welbeck, of Lovecraft Welbeck stuff doesn't quite the, work that way. Welbeck makes this interesting point that Lovecraft is in a way more of, his, his mind works like an architect's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he, he's, he's, more, he's not really talking about characters and plot points, like you say, Brad. He's taking, mm-hmm. he's creating a world that draws you inward. And I've always thought Lovecraft would be a great theme park designer. Because yeah. that's what he's yeah. doing. He's yeah. creating these these worlds where all it, it's it's like it's taking you to this place of fascination where all you mm-hmm. want to do is go in deeper and ride the scary ride. Right. That's that's right. what that's what he does. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's he's yeah he's like building an experience more than he's he's telling a he's telling a a yeah. story. I mean, it is a story, but but you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. we've got at the mountains of madness, and then. There's like one or yeah. two other big ones, right? Yeah, there's a, there's 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 a couple of other ones. Yeah, there are two other ones, uh, three other ones actually that I want to make absolutely sure to hit. The sure. Shadow over Innsmouth. Um, yeah. If you read one, if you read one Lovecraft story out of this, if you're new to Lovecraft and uh, don't have any experience with this fiction, this would be the one I would recommend starting with, just because it's the most like a regular story. It's the only Lovecraft story that has a chase scene, and it's a good chase scene. <laughs> um, it's about a man who he's traveling through New England. He takes a bus, a shortcut uh, through a bus that goes to this little town called Innsmouth that no one ever goes to because apparently the people there are all degenerate half-breeds and they're gross and nobody likes to mix with them. So again, we have the uh, the racial themes from his yeah. horror in New York coming in. And the guy goes to Innsmouth and he finds out that it's actually true, that people have these unnaturally wide mouths, 
They have this weird uh, fish-like skin. They have these bulgy eyes. And uh, they have a church that doesn't actually correspond to any known religion, but nobody will tell anyone what religion it is. And he's, there's this, this scene where he's locked in his hotel room for the night, and he just hears these sort of squelching and crawling noises all around his hotel room. And it sets off this chase scene through the town in the dead of night. And it's, it pro- I think honestly, this is probably the Lovecraft story that would make the best adaptation. To yeah, a movie. It's the, that's a good it's the one that has the closest yep. thing to a plot. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the, the char- this, this narrator actually does survive and ends up going home and uh, making it home. And then there's, there's a twilight zone sort of twist at the end that sort of gets mm-hmm. you. really, really scared me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 1931, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Uh, and then just uh, two more, yeah, that I want to make sure to hit. Mm-hmm. 1932, The Dreams in the Witch House. This is, for my money, the creepiest Cthulhu mythos story of all of them. It's just so, it's like a David Lynch movie. It's this guy, he's a mathematician. He rents a room in a, in a cottage, again, in New England, in a little town. And the, the house formerly belonged to a woman who was named Keziah Mason, who was burned as a witch, but she was actually a mathematician who was way ahead of her time. And Lovecraft in this story brings in quantum physics, which was just barely, had barely even been discovered at the time that he was writing this in 1931. He brings in, he makes references to Einstein, the theory of relativity. And contrary to some of these earlier stories where you're more dealing with like magical sort of dream-like fantasy themes, this is a story in which he takes mathematics and makes it horrifying. Mathematics are the gateway. (laughs) Mathematics drives the narrator insane the more he studies them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it has, and the witches, the, the, the woman who was burned as a witch, she had, she escaped into some other realm of non-Euclidean space time through her knowledge of quantum, <laughs> quantum mechanics. And she has a familiar, every witch has to have a familiar, right? And her familiar is a little creature called Brown Jenkin. And it's a rat with a human face. Oh God. And, and there is oh. this, there is a scene in the story where the narrator is sleeping in his bed in the house. And he's, he's been reading about all the history of this house and he doesn't want to believe it's real. And, and then he starts hearing something scratching around in the shadows in the room. And he goes, oh, my God, it's it's the thing. It's brunch. And it's, it is just one of the flat out creepiest yeah. scenes ever. What oh, is, that's, is it, that's unsettling. Brown Jenkin? Brown Jenkin. Yeah. That would be that. a great name for a blues band. It would be. Brown <laughs> Jenkin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're right. But with a theremin. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then okay. the la- wow. last one, last one of the, the last really of the key works of, the, of this cycle. Uh, there are some other great stories in here, by the way, I'm skipping a few, but the yeah. last yeah. really big one, uh, 1934 or 35, The Shadow Out of Time. So this starts with a, an economics professor at a university. He's lecturing, he's getting a lecture on economics and he drops dead in like an epileptic faint in the middle of his lecture. Uh, he go, they take him to the hospital. He wakes up a few days later and he has he, some weird mannerisms. He doesn't quite seem to be himself. Uh, he, he has displays in a lack of knowledge about the most basic realities of everyday life. He doesn't know how to use silverware. He has trouble walking. Yet he has a sort of sardonic knowledge of the distant past and the distant future and refers to future events as though he already knows about them mm-hmm. and refers to events from you know, 50, 60 million years ago as if he is intimately familiar. And mm-hmm. it transpires that this guy, his, his consciousness was actually kicked out of his body 
by a, the member of a species known as the Great Race. But the, that's the name Lovecraft uses. They existed uh, in the, in the, around 65 million years ago, the time of the dinosaurs. So again, we have multiple eras, multiple epochs of life on Earth. This is not the race who existed 500 million years ago, who mm, built the city in the Antarctic. One. This is a different alien race who existed 65 million years ago <laughs> and built their cities in the, in the tropical jungles of the Jurassic period. Right. Uh, they 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 sort of look like big uh, cones with with uh, these sort of long three eyed heads on the ends of tentacles. They can project their minds through time, and they are librarians fundamentally. This is where I really feel like the Borgesian theme comes in. They have a library where they 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 kidnap the minds of other beings from all throughout time, uh, all throughout uh, space and time and uh, the galaxy from from every possible period, and. They bring them all together and they're librarians together. They work in this library and they record histories of their own times and they talk with one another. And you almost, as horrific as this is being portrayed in the story, you almost feel like this is kind of Lovecraft LARPing a little bit. Like mm -hmm. this is kind of, he, he kind of would like to be there. Uh, there's, there's, this, there's a passage in the story where he talks about like, I, I've, I've conversed with like, uh, similar to the one that I read earlier from Beyond the Wall of, Beyond the Wall of Sleep. He's like, I've conversed with, you know, an insect philosopher from Jupiter and a man from an empire 10,000 years in the future and a, an astrophysicist from the year 2530 and all these different yeah. And it, 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 it just has this incredible <clears throat> sense of scale. And then it's like, in the, it's like look, Morty, I'm a pickle. I'm right. A pickle, Morty. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, yeah. multiple, multiple people have compared Lovecraft to Rick and Morty, and I think yeah. it's I think it is not a bad comparison. Actually, and this it's story like, is like the key yeah. one, really. It, it's it, it really it's 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 yeah. like yeah, it's come on, Morty, we're on the other planet, we're in the tentacle right. alien bodies, right. we're recording our history of Earth, you know, sixty-five right. million yeah. years ago. I need you to catch right. up, Morty. Come on, right? So, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that's where Lovecraft <laughs> takes you. And then, of course, these creatures are terrified of an even more scary race of beings who are on the Earth even longer and live in these black subterranean tunnels. And and then the the, the climax of the story is that the narrator actually goes to find the ruins of the actual city, which still exist in the, now they're in the wilderness of Australia. And the, uh, there's, a, there's a, a twist at the end, which is that he excavates the ruins and he finds something that uh, confirms, he, he, he's been sort of hoping throughout the whole story that this whole thing was just some sort of a wild dream or something. But uh, once he gets back to his own body, he goes to the ruins in Australia, digs up the place that he remembers and, and finds things that prove to him that he actually was there in that alien body right. 65 million years right. ago. Right. No, that's a part that one. Uh, yeah, that's one. That's another one that I hadn't read before that I read as part of part of the preparation for this and was was impressed by it for sure. Um, so, yeah, no, that's an amazing that's an amazing overview of, of, of Lovecraft's Push it to the limit. Yeah, <laughs> We're going and to it's not the limit. even it's not even everything he wrote in this period, but th that was great. Yeah, um, I want to kind of I want to kind of because we are we're we're going kind of long. We're in Kubrick uh, territory, which is fine. Um, we gotta. I want to kind of talk about the the last whatever say 1926. Lovecraft dies in 1937, so we're not talking about a lot more life here. But there are some kind of things that we've planted about him that I kind of want to sort of round out in these these later years. The the period after, so much like his uh, period after high school, his period after his mo mother dying, there's a period um, after Sonia leaves where he kind of withdraws. He comes out of it 
and this is rough approximations in time, but it's about right. He comes out of it with Call of Cthulhu and this amazing run of, of work that, that Ben has laid out so beautifully. And you've got this stuff down. Um, that, was, that was really impressive. Um, <laughs> I've been reading. I've been reading and reading. See, the, the funny thing about how how horrific and terrible and nihilistic this mythos is, I, yeah. I, I'm kind of powerless to explain why, but it's fun to read. It rewards yeah. rereading. It's like, it a, and I don't, I don't know why it's yeah. a world that you want to spend time in, but it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to kind of, I want to kind of give you a sense of what he's like sort of at the end right because we painted him as this as this racist and this uh um this this kind of uptight person who who was um who you know was dependent on other people kind of ineffectual um and and he's maturing he the way i think of him is he's like 15 or 20 years behind in maturity so by the time he hits 40 in some ways he's as mature as like a 20 year old might be um, in some ways and, and in other ways he's you know he's a fully grown man um, the racism thing I think is is kind of interesting like I said um, every time he would encounter another group of people in a real way he would be be he would soften that edge so he travels to Quebec and he's enamored of Quebec he he you know the French Canadians who he thought of as you know just another group like any other that wasn't a good old you know a good old you know, white Protestant American, um, he, he, those are, they're redeemed in his eyes. He, in fact, writes a 70,000, 75,000 word travel log about Quebec that includes maps and everything else. He could have probably sold it if he would have, you know, taken yeah. the time to, to, to make it, put it in a proper form and, and actually do that. Um, he did favor Hitler. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I'm laughing about. Why that. are we laughing about this? <laughs> but it's but there's something because it's so because it's so dramatic. It's like what you know. So he does he does he does favor Hitler. You know, here's the here was here was the appeal to try and understand what the the, the very reactionary tendency, uh, the reactionary appeal of a fascist and fascism might be for somebody like Lovecraft. You're talking again about somebody who thinks they belong in the 18th century, who thinks and thereby thinks that society is go undergoing decadence is degrading and that a fascist might be able to, to keep that process from happening. I think that's the most generous, um, most generous take you can have on somebody who might have some some might have a meaning so, towards fashion and super important to remember too that hitler at the time was he duped a lot of people yeah no right Had he duped an entire he duped an entire country right yeah yeah right. and in fact one of the things that 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 um tamped lovecraft's um sort of favoritism for Hitler. He had negative things to say about him. He sort of spoke about both sides of his mouth about Hitler, at least early on. One thing that happened was for a time, Lovecraft lived with a woman who was a Germanophile who would go to Germany in 1935, 1936, I believe, and would come back and tell Lovecraft these horrible stories about how Jews were being treated. And she was completely disillusioned by Germany entirely. And so that was one thing that kind of made him think twice another thing was a book came out or he read a book in 1935 called the science of life 
by H.G. Wells, which was somebody who we respected, and Julian Huxley, which debunked the whole Aryan myth, which was what a lot of Lovecraft's racism was based on. He thought he was being scientific. Um, again, this is not excusing it, but you're thinking about what are your influences. You know, he had read a book that told him Aryans were the greatest race of all time and sort of bought it hook, line, and sinker because it played into his own sense feelings of inadequacy, right? Um, and again, I'm just trying to I'm trying to paint a picture of a person whose whose perspective evolved over time, and then maybe it didn't end where we would like it to end, but it isn't necessarily the same person who wrote all those terrible things about people he saw in the East Side slums, right? It's it's it it changes. Um, he um, eventually gives up, you know, his quote unquote judo Judeophobia. Um, in, in, in a letter basically says something along the lines of we've all got to live together. Let me read that real quick um, because it is one of the later things he says on this sort of topic. And I think it's important that if we're going to call him a racist and all of these things, we should at least uh, give him maybe the final say on this. Um, <clears throat> the general Jewish question, this is from a letter of his. And again, I'm not saying I agree with any of this, right? This isn't, this is trying to understand who this guy was and how his mind worked. The general Jewish question has its perplexing cultural aspects, but the biologically unsound Nazi attitude offers no solution. What is more, it is equally silly to belittle even the admittedly hybrid art of Judeo-Germans or Judeo-Americans. It may not represent genuine German or American feeling, feeling, but at least it has a right to stand. But it at least has a right to stand on its own feet as a frankly exotic or composite product, which may well excel much of our own art in intrinsic quality. Still, more is equally silly to insist that the mere element of blood, as distinguished from culture, makes art necessarily hybrid. Almost any line of solution is better than the arbitrary and unscientific ones the Nazis have chosen. Right. So that's. To me, that in and of itself, you know, it's still a little problematic, <laughs> but, but it's not Hitler was right, right? It's, it's decidedly not um, Hitler was right. The Aryan race should reign supreme. You know, you know it, it, we should gas, gas the foreigners. It's, it's definitely not in that mind frame anymore. And so I just kind of want to make sure we get, get that in with the rest of this stuff. I suppose. Um, yeah, it's it, it's tough because to this day, the weird fiction community continues to struggle with how how do we parse what do we do with H.P. Lovecraft? Because right. obviously, you can't you can't write. There is no such thing as weird fiction without H.P. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. right? There, any anybody that says that they work in this genre without being influenced by Lovecraft is lying because it's right. <laughs> his, his influence is either direct or indirect. Yeah, it's, yeah. He's, he's he's super racist, and yet as a human being, he's so he's so problematic. Um, you know, even with with some of the mitigating remarks that he made later in life you know he did write the n-word poem he did have mm -hmm. a cat named n-word man he wrote letters mm -hmm. in support of, of hitler you know and these are facts uh, and right. so it, it's it's it, this is this is something that the community continues to struggle with i would say that uh at the conventions that i've been to the the attitude tends to be that lovecraft talking about lovecraft is kind of canceled like people just don't really want to talk about him which I don't really feel like is a great solution either because no. he, he's there. I mean, you, right. what do you, you know, what do you, it's like hard to talk about sci-fi without talking about Asimov. Like what right. do you do? What do, you do? So well, it's, it's something that, and, that, that continues to be struggled. With. Right. And then are you really, okay. So yeah. Are you really, are you really dealing with, well, see the part that's tricky to me too, is that it's so to me, there's a, uh, 
his attitudes was leaking into sort of his the cosmology that he was yeah. writing in, right? And Absolutely. so if you're going to be like, well, you know, it, it's not that, oh, he coincidentally was also racist. Right. It, it, it's, in, it's in the stories themselves. The, this, 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 par- is, this, xenof- this cosmic xenophobia is, goes along with his very everyday Providence, Rhode Island xenophobia. Absolutely. And this, yeah. is, this is one of the things that the, the weird fiction community continues to struggle with is, right, right is exactly, it's, 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 as you said, it's that it's not just that Lovecraft was super influential, it's would we even have weird fiction as we know it today if Lovecraft hadn't been a racist? Right. And that's, <laughs> like, yes. would, and that's that, you know, that's a really, really tricky question to wrestle with every yeah. you know we all we all like reading about you know the the tentacled monsters who who mm-hmm. come down into the the rural new england communities to breed with people and produce unnatural progeny and we like playing the rpgs about it we don't right. like we don't like talking about the fact that this came out of the fact that lovecraft really hated black people you know right. so it's right it's, <laughs> what do we what do we do with that and there's yeah. there is there is no, there's easy, no answer. easy answer no there really isn't sure. yeah yeah he yeah, may so, be the most American figure that we've done in terms of just how extreme <laughs> and contradictory mm-hmm. and of mm-hmm. his time, you know, that yeah. he was. We forget that, was it Wilson that uh, screened uh, Birth of a Nation at the White House? And I do think it is a, it is a fault of a community. And Ben, I don't, I don't lurk in on the threshold of these circles you're describing so to speak um short of doing the podcast but uh like you do have to wrestle with this stuff and you ought to and you ought to think about it and you ought to think about the milieu that he came out of and the period and try to put it in a box try to understand it and wrestle with the whole picture of the thing and Mm -hmm. and of course disavow the worst of it yeah what what else are you gonna do but not talking about it you're it's not yet an answer yeah. No, it's yeah. not an answer. It's not. Right. So hopefully this podcast has done a little bit of that and maybe opened up some people's minds to a little bit of this. Yeah, go on, Brad. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I totally agree. It's something that I, I kind of wrestled with when I was starting to put these notes together. I was like, how are we going to, how am I going to talk about this? Like, how, is this, how do you present this in a way? These things are so sensitive now that, that there is a, like you were saying, Ben, talking about Lovecraft is cancer. Like there is a sense in which even, without even stating an opinion, these can be dangerous things to talk about. Well, they're already in the process of trying to rewrite the uh, Harry Potter universe. without. uh, There's a faction in that fandom that's rewriting it without her because she's being canceled. It's all coming so fast. But I I do wonder, do we have enough distance from Lovecraft? There's a little more time. And he's such an oddball and so far out. Right. I just, again, I just cannot imagine ever being, ever going on a date with a man, ever marrying the man. Right. Uh, Yeah. I just, what a, what a character. Yeah. Well, now let me. At the end of the, at the end of the uh, DeCamp bio that uh, Brad was putting from earlier, uh, Els Bragg DeCamp actually says at the end of the book, he says, I do not pretend to understand H.P. Lovecraft. (laughs) Even his biographer throws up his hands. Like, I don't know. I don't know. know. Yeah. (laughs) That's what he was. That's what he did. You know who does? Reddit. Reddit. Yeah. Reddit gets it. We got to take it to Reddit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reddit. Everybody on Reddit is like, yeah, mm-hmm. man, they're like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. I understand Rach B. Lovecraft. I have the unique insights into this, this singular mind. 
Yeah. So <laughs> let me let me give because we are kind of going long, and I and and I think it's good. It, it's been great. We've hit the we've hit the the major biographical points. We're going to kind of wind down because we've we've kind of talked about the majority of his work, and I think we've painted who he is and the arc. But I also kind of want to land Lovecraft a little bit because he he had so much you know pain kind of pain i don't even know if it's pain but he'd had so much withdrawal and so much just being coddled first and then withdrawing himself in his later life he would start to travel starting in 1928 he would travel to see friends in massachusetts in new york city he would eventually wander kind of down south to georgia and florida and he began he became something of an expert traveler in his very sort of um you know, very attention to detail kind of way, you know, he would know all of the bus routes and he would know how to do it as cheap as possible and where to stay and, 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 you know, you know, what, what to do to, to live on as, as few dollars as he could to stretch out the, stretch out the time as much as possible. Um, and, you know, there, we have to imagine just as we imagine Lovecraft um, in a heavy robes to keep himself warm in an old creaky house in Providence by himself, pale, um, with a bathtub full of can- empty candy containers, which a visitor once said he had. As much as we have to imagine him as that, we also need to imagine Lovecraft with a straw hat sitting down out in the sun in Florida as a 45-year-old man. You know, we, we got we to gotta keep both of these things in mind. Um, the last episode, Kevin, that we did, we talked a little bit about a late friendship that he developed with Robert Barlow which I find is fascinating. Robert Barlow is this like 13 or 14 year old kid who starts writing Lovecraft. Lovecraft, who's a man in his 40s. Um, and they develop a, a correspondence, friendship. And Bar- Barlow ends up inviting Lovecraft down, whereupon Lovecraft discovers that it's a 14 year old boy. <laughs> Whether he knew it beforehand is not entirely clear. It's not, it's not 100% sure that Lovecraft knew it before, but he, he might have. Um, he goes and he stays out in the boonies of Florida with Robert Barlow and Robert Barlow's father um, for a fairly extended period of time. Uh, and they develop a lifelong uh, relationship that lasts the rest of Lovecraft's life. Um, Robert Barlow is even his literary executor um, before it's handed off to, um, is it August Derleth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, August Derleth gets, gets Lovecraft's, gets his hands on Lovecraft's estate. Uh, mm. Lovecraft didn't leave his estate to, to Derleth, as I'm right. sure you're probably about to say. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but Barlow was supposed to be the, was supposed to be right. the, yeah. And then that got, and I think Barlow kind of dropped the ball and, and maybe didn't really want to, and, and he wouldn't have been the champion that, that Derleth was anyway, because, because Robert Barlow went, ran off to Mexico and 10 years later, you know, took a bunch of second all and killed himself uh, so he wouldn't get outed as a homosexual um so so um what yeah. there's a lot of in there, almost everybody that run that lovecraft runs into would be an interesting subject for an episode robert barlow would be an interesting subject for an episode on here um robert e howard would be a fascinating subject oh, yeah. on here 1936 yeah. robert barlow's mother dies of falls into a terminal coma from cancer and he he kills himself at the age of 30 after inventing conan the barbarian you know which is uh, i'm conan the barbarian conan that in that world which is a comparable uh development of a mythos if he'd been given 10 more years he could have built that into something even even larger than than it already was and it's still you know it's a huge looming uh, artistic production yeah um and so we reach this point where lovecraft doesn't quite get 
the credit maybe he deserved, but he does get some credit. People know who he is. He's a, he's a, he's a, you know, Weird Tales all-star. He's getting approached for book deals, though it never quite works out. Um, he did have a novel in the works, by the way. He, he wanted did. to do he wanted to do like a Faulkner esque uh, family saga about a, a family of of witches and warlocks who live in this old New England farmhouse and have contact with the uh, the entities from outside. And right, so it's, right, it's right. fascinating to wonder it's what right. that would have become. It's so metal. It's so heavy metal. I love it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, so, and then in 1936, um, we'll give a quick kind of byline on this. And then I want to give you one letter that tells you what Lovecraft thought of his own writing career and things kind of at the end. 1930, late 1936, he starts feeling ill into 1937. Um, it turns out that he, he gets diagnosed of uh, stomach cancer, March 2nd of 1937. He's already in severe pain. Um, one of his aunts has preceded him in death by several years. Um, I think the other one is still alive, I believe. Um, and he very quickly from March 2nd, I think he dies on March 15th, uh, in a hospital in an incredible amount of pain. Um, though, you know, by all accounts, he was still a gentleman to the, with the nurses to the very end, um, stoical about the physical pain and, 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 you know, passes on at age, <clears throat> uh, 46. Um, which is pretty remarkably young, I would say. That is a yeah. lot younger than I would have anticipated. <clears throat> and yet it kind of makes sense given mm-hmm. the nature of his body of work where there's mm-hmm. no fully realized novel. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised and not surprised that he passed away that young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also the money in his uh, inheritance account. It's like his, it's like his, his physical body, his yeah. inheritance money, That's a good and point. his body of work all like run out at like yeah. almost exactly the same time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. HP Lovecraft is done with Earth. Right. That, yeah, that is that is exactly up. why you need to support the show at yeah. Patreon.com/slash <laughs> Art of Dark Pod, uh, where we're going to talk on the After Dark episode for this with the great Ben Thomas, who's done a wonderful yeah. job. We're going to talk about uh, is Cthulhu real? But I'm going to let Brad yeah. stick the yeah. landing. Yeah. So let me let me read this one story. This is this one letter, and then we'll kind of close it. Um, this is Lovecraft wrote to a woman named uh, Helen Sully, who is another writer. <clears throat> in actual fact, there are, two, there are few total losses and never wases which discourage and exasperate me more than the venerable HPL. I know a few persons, and this is him writing about himself. I know a few persons whose attainments fall more consistently short of their aspirations or who in general have less to live for. Every aptitude which I wish I had, I lack. Everything which I wish I could formulate and express, I have failed to formulate and express. Everything which I value, I have either lost or am likely to lose. Within a decade, unless I can find some job paying at least $10 per week, I shall have to take the cyanide route through inability to keep around me the books, pictures, furniture, and other familiar objects which constitute my only remaining reason for keeping alive. And so far as solitude is concerned, I probably capture all metals. In Providence, I've never seen a congenial mind with which I could exchange ideas, and even among my correspondents, there are fewer and fewer who coincide with me on enough points to make discourse enjoyable on a few specialized points. The newer generation has grown away from me, while the old, whilst the older is so fossilized as to form very meager material for argument or conversation. In everything, philosophy, politics, aesthetics, and interpretation of the sciences, I find myself alone on an island with an atmosphere almost of hostility gathering around me. 
With youth, all the possibilities of glamour and adventurous expectancy departed, leaving me stranded on a shelf with nothing to look forward to. The reason I've been more melancholy than usual in the last few years is that I am coming to distrust more and more of the value of the material I produce. Adverse criticism has of late vastly undermined my confidence in my literary powers. That was right near the end. I think that was 1936 he wrote that letter, 1937, spring, he, he passes on. And, and so left kind of thinking, well, yeah, you know, some people like my work. I never really managed to pull off what I wanted to pull off. Um, I don't really, f I feel alienated still, you know, I feel like now, but now he's old, right? And, and at some point you're all potential. And, and, and by the time you're 46, um, you know, you're, some of that potential has either been, been actualized or, or used up and, and he, he didn't, you know, he didn't really understand what he'd actually accomplished. I think it's worth noting that H.P. Lovecraft would not actually see print in an actual book uh, until after mm -hmm. his death. That yep. was when uh, August Durless uh, started Arkham House Press, mm -hmm. uh, published a collection called The Outsider and Others, which was the first anthology, hardcover anthology of H.P. Lovecraft's work. And he'd later be taken up, uh, oddly enough, as a flagship author by the hippie community, alongside Tolkien and Herbert, uh, which obviously yeah. Lovecraft <laughs> would not have uh, been a big fan of that. No, but uh, no, yeah, di no. died, died thinking that he probably would never be known beyond pulp magazines right yeah. right well there's a lot more synergy between the hippies and the fascists than i think the hippies would like to admit <laughs> let's be real be, yeah <laughs> but that's a topic for another podcast that's right that's I, right so yeah i, have, I think i am go, go mm -hmm. no uh i am just going to applaud you boys for thanks. thanks yeah that was a that was doozy. a lot and we had some more we could go into Ooh. but i think that we're well, gonna yeah. do it on we, the, <laughs> have done more than this actually yes, we're yes. we're gonna have a patreon episode <laughs> mm -hmm. i think that we we do end with a question too don't we brad yeah. yes yeah. we do what is lovecraft doing now i think we tossed this to ben if ben if lovecraft was alive now what would he be doing what would he be doing i think he would absolutely be spurning and shunning all things digital media i think he would have no interest in any of the communities that have taken up his work uh you know heavy metal uh any any <laughs> any anything countercultural he would absolutely be mm. disgusted by um, I think probably he would still be living in Providence, and mm -hmm. I think he'd be probably he might have written his novel. Uh, he mm -hmm. might he would certainly probably have written more short stories and uh, being very solicitous to people who came to see him in person. I think not a bad analog is uh, what happened with Alan Moore. You know, Alan mm -hmm. Moore was a very successful graphic novelist throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s. There's a bunch of movies based on his work, all of which Alan Moore absolutely hated. And mm -hmm. Alan Moore retired back to his hometown in England. He still lives there. He teaches like small literature classes, goes for his daily walks with a circle of friends. Uh, from what I've heard, if you go and see him in person, he's perfectly friendly, but will have no dealings with the social media sphere, Hollywood, the film industry, none of it. He just he just wants to live in his little cottage in the countryside and, and be a writer and, and have his quiet little life. Yeah, and I think good, I, good for him. Isn't he I also think, a practicing yeah. magician though? He is. He is. He is. He is a practicing uh, wizard. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. a huge and a huge Lovecraft fan. And I, I think and, honestly, if, I think that's where we'd find Lovecraft. I, I think yeah. we'd find him at his little house in Providence, just scribbling away. And let's go, let's go on the record here. This podcast is friends of 
uh, people from Rhode Island. We're friends of people from Cleveland. We're <laughs> yes. giant friends of the Italians, and yeah. we're massive friends with the Wizards. We are. Yes. Yeah, you really don't want to go against the Wizards. Never. No, <laughs> it would be a terrible idea. Ben, can you get your get your plugs in? Tell people where they can find you. And I want to thank you uh, so much and Brad for organizing this. A lot of work goes into these episodes. We really do earnestly look for your support. We look for it through Patreon, but also through our website at artofdarkpod.com. Ben, where can people find you? Top place you want to go, houseblackwood.net. My two books, The Cradle and the Sword and Tales from Omnipark, those are both on Amazon. And The Willows Anthology, you can find at willowsmagazine.com. Recommend checking all of them out. Love it. Brad, we're going we're gonna to go another uh, 30 minutes, maybe maybe another uh, 45 minutes at this rate. This is, this is a banger. <laughs> we're going to go. And I really do want to hear your, your thinking on, is Cthulhu real? And I have a feeling yes. uh, we're going to, go a little deeper into Lovecraft. I, I have a, Why not? A, a hunch that there are a few things maybe sure. y'all left out. So yeah, that's again, for the Patreon folks. Yeah, that's it. Patreon.com slash Yes. And again, uh, Viva Italia. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to cover my bases. <laughs> I hear you. I hear this you. guy is like, uh, yeah, hot. I'm going to stand up and stretch really quick. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. See you, boys. Yeah.